It's that time again! Hello, everybody! Happy Friday! Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. Big show tonight, lot to address, lot to establish, many notable names in attendance. My first guest has had a hell of a career, big resume, many stories to tell. Very excited to have him with us. He joins us now. We have Jason Cole. Jason, your first time on Rory Sauter in the News. It is an honor to have you here, sir. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, wow. all that stuff. Uh, let's see, um, 40 years as a journalist, uh, 30 of it covering the NFL, um, graduated from Stanford, uh, along the way, went there when John Elway was there, wrote a oh, wow. book about John Elway, um, a biography of him. I've written eight books, um, broken some big investigations, the Reggie Bush investigation back in 2005 where he ended up losing his Heisman by the end of it when it was all done or gave up his Heisman. Um, worked at the Miami Herald, Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, worked at uh, Yahoo Sports, at uh, Bleacher Report. I've been a bunch of places along the way. It's been a fun ride. Dude, this is going to be a fun interview. I can't wait for this. I have so <laughs> many questions for you. Let, let's, okay. let's, start, let's start off with... Going to school with John Elway, writing a book about that, experiencing that, kind of give us the play-by-play, how that all went down. Well, uh, as it turns out, you know, again, was at Stanford at the same time um, as as Elway and had a, a fabulous time, you know, going to school, getting to watch him play in college was just an amazing thing. I mean, I... I thought I understood football, and then I watched him. I, I still remember to this day two throws from when I was an undergrad and watching him play, saying that's just absolutely impossible. And one was just a slant pass that he threw that I'd never heard a thud that loud when it hit the receiver in the chest. It was just this echoing sound that filled the stadium. And then there was this other throw, which a lot of people heard about, and I wrote that I, I wrote about him, which was – he threw about a, it's probably about a 70 yard throw from one end to the other where he hit Ken Marjoram in the back of the end zone for a touchdown over Ronnie Lott and USC, which was after I think 14 seconds of scrambling. Yeah. It was, a, it was one of those prototypical Elway scrambles where he, he did the little Elway spin away from a defender, ran to one side, spun away from him again, came back and then just, Marjoram, the the rule for with Elway and Kyle was if the if the guy breaks the pocket and you know starts to scramble, if the quarterback breaks the pocket, in normal football you're supposed to if you're a receiver you're supposed to come back to the to the quarterback so it's easier to him for him to find you. With Stanford, the rule was no, you take off and you run deeper because there was no throw that he couldn't make. So Ken Marjoram runs all the way to the back of the end zone, and Elway unleashes this throw and. And even Ronnie Lott, I talked to Ronnie Lott about the throw, and he couldn't believe it. He said there are certain things that humans aren't supposed to do that you never see, and then you see it, and you know that there's are a few rare human beings out there who can do this. 
And he threw that touchdown over to Marjoram, and Ryan Lott laid out Marjoram right on the catch. I mean, it's a fantastic play. It's one of those things that it's the reason you fall in love with writing sports. Yeah, and and Jason, you know, going back to his days at Stanford when you were there, um, was he – did you anticipate and expect him to be as big of a star as he was in the NFL? Did you already see it coming? Well – we all thought that. I mean, we thought we were seeing the second coming of, you know, of greatness. In fact, for most of me and my friends, the frustrating part was the first 10 years of his career where we thought, okay, he's going to win a Super Bowl. He's going to get win a Super Bowl. He's going to win a Super Bowl. And then just kept, kept getting crushed. And then he finally, at the end of his career, finally gets to, gets to, to win those championships that we thought he was, you know, going to win. You know, it was just unfortunate that Dan Reeves, did you know just kind of wasted his career for the first 10 years and not that they weren't a winning team that's that's the wrong way to put it but i don't think dan designed the offense and the team around elway the way that teams would in today's nfl if you had if you had elway today you would you would design everything around him rather than okay we'll have him to save us when every when the chips are down but we're going to have a running game and defense only where do you rank him as the all-time QBs? Oh, look, I'm partial. Uh, I know you're biased. I know you love I'm him. Very, uh, yeah, I mean, he's my favorite to watch. But if you're like, if you combine what his accomplishment and resume, yeah, you know, Brady's ahead of him. Manning is probably ahead of him. Montana. Yeah. Um, you know. If you were doing a true ranking, to me, he'd be in the top five. He'd probably be fourth or fifth. But if you're talking about the guy that, look, I want to pay money to see, you know, that, that's a different question. And I would pay money to see John Elway, um, you know, every day. Did you find his college career more exciting or his or his NFL career? Like, what were you more excited about? Well, his NFL career was by far better because they actually had players around him who were great. And um you know better and they gave it a, sh- a shot and he actually won games you know college is very frustrating um because he was stuck in that sort of intermittent intermittent period at stanford in, in the old days of stanford football we would be good for like two years in a row we'd go to bowl games you know maybe two years in a row like we under john ralston we went to back-to-back rose bowls and then under bill walsh we went to back-to-back bowl games and then like, if you got to be too good in football at Stanford, like, it would make people on the academic side nervous. And, well, we went to back-to-back bowl games. Elway comes in. This school's kind of nervous, like, oh, we're not supposed to be a football school. And, you know, it's, it's basically that gut feeling, even though they wouldn't admit it. And we just didn't recruit very well. Um, and we didn't surround him with a lot of talent. He, it was him – and a bunch of just guys. Um, I don't know that he had more than three or four other guys the entire time who were really draft-worthy kind of players. I mean, Darren Nelson, obviously, that's a first-round pick, but Darren was ahead of him. So he had a disappointing, you know, a very disappointing college career, he would say that. I think one winning record in four years and never going to a bowl game. And in regards to his professional career, um do, do you think he did everything he needed to do, or you think he could have done a little more? 
you always think that people could do. Uh, do you're cutting out a little bit. You always, you always feel like somebody could do more and accomplish more if it had had this or had that. But you go to five Super Bowls in your career, and you win too. Like that puts you in a very rare company, right? Like he, and then you come back as an executive, and I and I, you know, people don't make enough out of this point, but. There's only two men in the history of this game who have won a Super Bowl as a player, gone to the Hall of Fame, and then come back as either a coach or an executive who's been in charge and won another Super Bowl. Only two. And it's him and it's Mike Ditka. That's it. So for somebody to try and do that kind of an accomplishment, to chase greatness for that long in their life, is an amazing career. Yeah. And so to say, could he have done more? Yeah. Like the first 10 years, if Dan Reeves had figured it out, you think that there could have been more, but that's second guessing it. He, he's, he had a great. Is it fair to say that you would agree that his best years were in Denver? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, his best years are in Denver. Denver. They're only in Denver. Yeah. And what do you think about him leaving the management recently? Oh, it was time. I mean, I think he had gotten frustrated. I mean, look, part of being in, when you're in management, you only control so much. Yeah. And I think that he gave it a shot. And, you know, he built a team that went, won a Super Bowl and went to two Super Bowls, right? There's, like, it's hard to argue with that that resume. And I know there are a lot of people who like to criticize him for his drafting afterwards. But if you don't have John Elway, Peyton Manning doesn't sign there. If they if you don't have Peyton Manning, you don't win Super Bowls. It's just it, or get to get to two Super Bowls and win one. It's it's really that simple. Peyton Manning came to Denver because of John Elway because he trusted that this was a franchise quarterback who understood what it took to be a contender, and that would and that John Elway would do everything to build a contender around him. The other thing that John Elway understood better than most quarterbacks and more, most football people is he understood defense because he understood what was frustrating for him to face. So when he picked Von Miller and then brought in a bunch of really terrific cornerbacks and safeties and, you know, the no fly zone, that's all Elway. That's all Elway's genius. Um, so I, I guess I don't, I don't think he gets the same kind of appreciation but I would put it this way. In the history of Denver sports and the Denver Broncos, they've won three Super Bowls. There are only two human beings who are who have you know, a thread through all three of those. One of them is John Elway. You know, two is a player and one is a as an executive. The other is Pat Bowling. All right. That's it. You know, so every Super Bowl victory in the history of the Denver Broncos directly ties through those two men do you do you agree that john elway is by far the biggest sports icon uh out of denver out of colorado period yeah i, mean, I, I don't know who would be yeah I mean, obviously Jokic now has some national fame but it's a different it's a different i mean there's players like larry walker who played you know for the colorado rockies but he's not nearly on the same level he was a superstar but but there are examples of great you know professional athletes that have played 
for sports teams in the city of Denver, but I don't think anybody matches the caliber of John Elway. No, nobody defines an area like the way that John, John Elway defines. I mean, sure, Dan Issel had a fantastic career when he played for the, the Denver Nuggets. And, you know, and then it was known in media for years and years and years. And even he would admit that. And how much do you think his departure had to do? Because I'm, I'm a Seahawks fan, born and raised in Seattle. Uh, you know, Russell Wilson left the team kind of in a in a uh, not a friendly manner. I, I think he could have gone about it a different way. But how, how much do you think the, the failing season of the Denver Broncos last year had to do with um, Elway's departure and, and you know, saying oh, is there, it, has, it had zero to do with it. Um, his contract was running out anyways. And it was a new, new ownership group. Um, he was going to leave no matter what. In fact, he, the only reason he stayed is that there were some, there were some contractual terms that were tied to him staying for the final year. Um, he was done. He was done as a, as a, an executive. I mean, I think that the drafting of, I'm trying to remember the kid that who's the second round pick drew Locke that they took. Yeah. Um, I think that drew Locke's failure was the thing that probably frustrated him and kind of pushed it and said, like, I'm just done with this. You know, I don't need to, I don't need to go through this. That was, that had more to do with anything than Russell Wilson. Do you think he feel like, do you think he feels like it was a mistake the way they went after Wilson and paid so much money for him? Well, after one year, it's a mistake. I mean, there's, there's I mean, no do you question. see Will, do you see Wilson coming back after that big of a failure? I think Wilson's a lot closer to the quarterback that we saw in the first 10 years than the, the quarterback that we saw last year. I think but I think part of it is Russell's fault because Russell think Russell thinks he's Drew Brees, who is the the player that he's looked up to the most in his career, right? He's not Drew Brees. He's not a pocket quarterback. He needs to learn. He needs I'm mean, not saying learn to play on the outside. He obviously knows how to do that already. But he needs to understand that he has to play outside the pocket to make sure that he's good when he is inside the pocket. He, he can't, he can't be a, 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 he has to be a moving target, not a stationary target. And that's the difference. Otherwise he's, he's too easy to rush. So to me, I think we'll see him return to closer to what he was in Seattle and that Sean Payton will, as he said, you know, last year, you know, when he, before he ever applied for the job, if I had him, I would go look at his best place and do what he does best and get him back to me, that Russell Wilson. I just think that it's not going to last that long because he's, you know, he's up in age. So the ability to move the way that he did when he was in Seattle is eventually going to to decline. And did Elway have, have a lot to do with uh, signing Peyton? Um. I don't think so. I think that that was mostly the new ownership. I don't think, look, he wasn't going to be around, right? And Peyton knew Peyton knew that coming in. Oh, did Peyton Peyton and Elway have some sort of conflict? Did they not get along? No, 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 no. He just knew Elway's contract. Look, this is about Elway's contract ran out, and Elway didn't. Elway had fulfilled and done what he wanted to do, and was tired of being in management. Now, if they'd offered him a ton of money, ton of money to stay, you know, he probably would have stayed. But I don't think that that was in the offing. Right. Okay. They, the two sides had moved on. He was under contract with the old administration. 
he did it and has now moved on. And despite the fact that, you know, Greg Penner has, you know, ties to Stanford University, that 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 tie doesn't extend to Elway. Okay, it extends more to Condoleezza Rice than it does to, to John Elway. Um, that's Penner. That's Penner's. Um, you know, those are his, those are his links more than it are, are to Elway. So Elway just moved on the way that he was designed. He was planning to move on anyways. Again, even before the sale was even discussed with Penner and the Walton family, um, John was John was going to leave. That was going to happen. So it has nothing to do with anything between him and the current ownership group, and it has nothing to do with him and you know Sean Payton. Do you think he'll go to another team and do do no, some? No. You think he's done? Johnson, he's he's sixty three now or sixty two now. Yeah. Um. But I, I just I think John is happy doing what he does. He has his challenges of his business. Right. Understanding him the way that I understand him, I think this this was his this was his last thing to try and accomplish. This, this was his last. You know, this was his last big attempt to publicly tilt at the windmills. Right. Um, will he be buying businesses and trying to grow his wine business and the car businesses and other things? I'm sure he's going to be doing that until the day he dies. But for right now, in terms of a public um, display, putting himself out front, um, I think he's he's done with that. So Denver is, is the last place he's going to be. Right. And I've heard mixed stories. Have you personally met him? I've heard some people say he's a yeah. really nice guy. Some people say he's very short and just not, you know, not the most um, social person. I've heard um, mixed stories. No, no, he's look, John can be incredibly charming. He can also, if you live in a, if you live a public life, there are going to be times you disappoint people in the public because you can't give everything of yourself to that life so that's just going to be it i mean does he have you know an edgy side yeah he absolutely has an edgy side um but he's also the guy who you know wrote about this in the book you know he's breaking down in tears about his dad one time just sitting in a car in the parking lot at, at mile high stadium one day and these fans come up and knock on the door right of the car because they see him in the car here he's in you know in the middle of a crying jag and he just like you know, he like gets it together and gets out of the car and gives him a bunch of, you know, he talks to him for five or 10 minutes and gives him a bunch of, of autographs. Right. I mean, to, to be able to do that, you know, means that, you know, you are, you know, considerate of your fans in important times and he tries the best that he possibly can. But yeah, yeah there are, there are certain times like, you know, if you're really going to get something out of him, he has to trust you or he has to know who you are. Right. And so if, if you if you don't qualify that way, you're probably going to get some short, curt answers. And I, I got to ask you, what do you think about how the NFL is played today? What do you think about compared to 20 years ago? Oh, well, look, it's a it's a game that's not for. Um, you know. It's a game that's not made for. Um, the consumption of fans back in the seventies and eighties. Okay. The fans that, or even, or even the nineties and the nineties were great too. And, and a little bit of the early two thousand. Uh, I, I think the game is great no matter what. Okay. Right. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not one of those people oh, back in my day. It's just different. Okay. Too political, too, too much, 
you know, no, it's, 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 look, entitlement, it, entitlement, overpaid athletes. No, not really. It's more, it's more. If you're going to have lawsuits about concussions, coupled with the fact that you're going to try and sell this game to mom and pop, okay, of the masses, okay, instead of a niche audience that just loves football for what football's sake is, if that's what you're going to do, if you're trying to sell this on a much larger scale than you did back in the 90s or back in the 80s or even 10 years ago, all right? You always, the the violence of the game always has to get reduced, okay? It's just like MMA. When MMA started, MMA was a pure blood and gut sport, okay? And it was, you know, hardcore, you know, people bleeding on the mat and they didn't care. But you can't sell that to a mass audience because the mass audience is going to get turned off by that kind of of game and so eventually at a certain point people tune out if it's too grotesque the football of 30 years ago um, i i remember back in the 70s when i was watching a rams game and jim youngblood uh, the linebacker for the rams sacked uh, tommy kramer of the vikings and they showed tommy kramer going through convulsions on the field with his with his hand like this right if you showed that today, like it was what they showed last year with Tua was a national uproar with him going through convulsions. I mean, I, again, I remember seeing that in the 70s. That's just that was the way the game was. And now you can't you just can't do that and and expect that people are going to love the sport the same way. That's not what the, that's not what they want to have. And so you have to adjust the game. And on top of that. If players are going to sue about concussions, and they're not wrong for suing about concussions, but if they're going to sue about concussions, okay, well, then you have to you have to make sure there aren't concussions in the game as much as they. Do you do you think the passion and the love and the enthusiasm to play the game is there as much as much as it was back in the day, or do you think for these players it's a lot more about the dollars? Well, the dollars have just grown exponentially. So obviously, you know, look, you can make generational um, family changing money if you're a player in today's game, if you're really good enough. Now, most of the guys don't make anything close to that kind of money. They make two or three million dollars over a three or four period, three or four year period of time. And they, you know, they get chewed up and they get spit out. Um, that's just the way the machine works. But, you know, yes. There are guys who can make 12, 15, 20, 50 million dollars um, if they if they work through it, or hundreds of millions of dollars if you're a quarterback. So yes, there's money as a part of it. That's okay. That's what the game is worth. But certainly the owners are making that kind of money. In fact, the owners are making their money hand over fist. Right? And really, in some ways, the game has changed the most from the ownership's greed and the ownership's desire to, to maximize the profits out of the game rather than more so than, than even the players. But the passion to play football, like you have to be passionate to play football. It's too painful, okay? It's just the grind of being a football player is too much if to, to just get through it um, in any other way. So you have you have to love it. And I think that, by and large, most players love it. I mean, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with Zach Thomas, 
um, who just went in the Hall of Fame, who I covered for most of his career. And he's still passionate about the game. And I, I gotta, I gotta ask you this: in in terms of these owners, you do you blame them for most of these, you know, uh, pay issues? Do you think there's a lot of greed going on? Do you think a lot of these players should be paid more? Um, I don't know necessarily that they should be paid more, but like football is not a business anymore. Okay, it's not about P and Ls. Okay, these are annuities. The, the, the Penner Walton family spent $4.6 billion to buy the Denver Broncos. Why did they do that? Because there's a guaranteed profit of probably in excess of $100 million a year. That, so they're buying something that they know there's a guaranteed payoff on the other side. They didn't spend that money, and, I don't, and nor should they have spent that kind of money just to say, oh, this is great. We get to be in sports. You know, we're going to run a sports team and won a bunch of championships. You invest $4.6 billion in something because you're going to get your money back. Right? right. So, I, you know, like, and the, you know, the Washington Commanders just went for $6.05 billion. I mean, you think that that guy is investing that kind of money because he just wants to go win a Super Bowl? No, they know that there is, you know, that there's guaranteed profit. These are annuity businesses. They're not, you know, they're not your standard old businesses. These are guaranteed profit operations. Right. And we, we were talking earlier, you mentioned the former uh, Bush uh, administration official, Condoleezza Rice, uh, who's now a Condoleezza part Rice. Of, yep. Yeah, Condoleezza Rice, who's now a part owner. Um, I mean, don't you think that's a little corrupt how she can go from a job that doesn't pay that much and then, you know, I mean, we know how these politicians make their money and, and it's just, it's, it's really a kind of a, it's an interesting thing. It's interesting that she's now part uh, owner. I, of I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily I mean, corrupt. I mean, her area of expertise, Look, I took a class in college from Condoleezza. So, um, you know, I have firsthand experience with Condoleezza and who she is, okay? Right. And, you know, yes, did she get paid well as an advisor and politician along the way and as a professor at Stanford and as a provost at Stanford? She, did she make hundreds of thousands of dollars and then probably parlay it into millions of dollars? Sure. But we're talking about one of the smartest human beings in the country and an expert in Soviet era politics and now Russian politics who's you know, there's no parallel to her. There's nobody who compares to her in terms of her expertise. She got paid for her expertise and her knowledge. And she got involved in sports, you know, at the collegiate level, you know, as an advisor on the NCAA, you know, uh, bowl championship series back when they had that. So she, you know, again, her love of sports, her passion for sports, her background in sports as a sports fan since she was little, um, you know, she's involved in the hiring of Tyrone Willingham and Danny Green at Stanford. You know, she's got experience when it comes when it comes to sports and knowledge when it comes to sports. So this is somebody that you bring on for multiple reasons, and she's worth the money. Whether I agree with her politics or not, and I don't really tend to agree with her politics, right. but she's she's a smart woman. And have you met her? Is she a nice lady? Well, I mean, again, I took a classroom when I was 19 at the time. Um, 
she was a tough professor. I mean, I would, it was no personal relationship there. It was, I was in a class of, you know, 80 people, there was 80 of us in the class and she's maybe more. I mean, you just see she's a genius. Yeah. She was, I think she was probably in her late twenties or early thirties at the time. So you never really had much interaction with her. No, not on that level. But I mean, again, I listened to her lecture and I've listened to her speak ever since then. Right. And again, we're talking about an incredibly intelligent, um, accomplished human being who is, as an advisor, worth probably anything that you could probably imagine um, right. as an advisor because she built up that resume and she knows what she's talking about. But a uh, personal relationship? No, I have none. And now let me ask you this about this Reggie Bush thing you covered with the Heisman scenario. Don't you think it was wrong that they took away his Heisman trophy? I mean, there are gave, so many there, there are so many players that get cars bought for them, that get large amounts of money up front. And most of it, you know, never never gets, you know, revealed. None of, most of it never gets reported. Most of them never get caught. He just he just happened to get caught, and it was an unfortunate unfortunate set of circumstances. But this is well, part. Of the, I feel like this is part of the recruiting game process. Yeah, but this wasn't recruiting. Um, this was a separate issue. Um, this was him take going out and selling his brand and his likeness to somebody to um, say that he was going to get into a business relationship with them once he was done playing college, college ball. This is aside from the money he got to go play at USC. So he oh, okay. So we're talking about two separate stories because I remember there was controversy with Pete Carroll and the USC coaching staff, how they yeah. bought him cars, they gave him money. You probably remember oh, that. No, no, they, they never – no, they didn't do that. It, he, he got cars. He got cars. I mean, look, I will say this. And I what what were they the guilty of then? Why did, why were they blaming the coach, the USC coaching staff? And well, it was like it was it was lack of institutional control because they should have known they should have known about it and they did know about it. So, um, and they did nothing and they did nothing to control it. But let's aside from that, I've always argued that even when I was in the middle of reporting this story, that Reggie deserved to get money. And that the NCAA was wrong for not having rules similar to what they have now that allowed athletes to get paid somehow, some way, or to profit off of their name, their image, their likeness, their ability. Now, I think things are a little bit out of control right now, and the, but they'll get, they'll fix themselves over the next few years. But he certainly deserved to go out and get money. But the fact of the matter is that he was flaunting the rules. And the way that Reggie really got in trouble is... He got into a business deal, wanted to get out of the business deal, but didn't want to pay back the money that he owed the people that he got in the business deal with. So when you, if you took $300,000 from somebody and you said, oh, okay, I'll do business with you, I'll do business with you, I'll do business with you, you take the $300,000 along the way, you change your mind and you say, oh, by the way, I'm not paying you back. Well, you're going to get in trouble. Like, pay the money back. Like, just get, you know, we got a deal and you want to get out of it. Okay, I'm probably not going to like it, but pay me my money back. It's a really simple principle. 
Reggie got in trouble because he got greedy and he got so greedy that he didn't want to pay somebody back $300,000. And he was making millions. Okay? So, do the business deal the right way. And everybody with any sense of logic told him to do that. And if he had, I never would have found out anything. But the result is he got angry at the person that he borrowed money, that he took money from, didn't want to pay him back. And guess what? That guy, that person took him to court and got their money back. And by the way, gave me a bunch of the information. So, hey, look, that's Reggie's fault. That's not USC. It's not USC's fault. It's not, you know, anybody else's fault. It's on Reggie that he should have paid the money back. And he should have been able to take those benefits. And yes, he should have been able to change you know, the face of college sports, which he has to a certain extent, but he should have done it in an honest way. Like I always say this about Reggie, stop lying about the fact that you took the money, admit that you took the money. Um, and you'd have a better chance to get your Heisman back. Do you think we'll ever see that day where we see him get the Heisman back? Probably not because he's, he's, He's insulted people so much. He's, you know, he's taken them to task and lied so much that it may be almost impossible at this point for him to go back on his word. He would have to basically grovel and say, I'm sorry, I was incredibly wrong. Like, look, he's being sued right now by the people, the, the guy who gave him the money way back when, back in 2005, is suing Reggie again because Reggie has slandered him and libeled him publicly, okay? And just, you know, accused him of all sorts of things where Reggie should just say, yeah, I took the money. Sorry. Sorry we had a disagreement. Okay? That's just, that's how simple this is. This is not a really complicated story about what Reggie did. Reggie took the money. He should admit that he took the money. And Jason, with with when you got this information, this data, what company were you reporting for? I was working for you uh, first. I was at the time I was working at the Miami Herald first, and then I went to work for Yahoo in the middle Yahoo Sports in the middle of this, and finished the investigation with Yahoo Sports. So, so and, that's, and then, where, that's where where I did it. And what do you think happened with his pro career? I mean, we we saw perhaps. I mean, in my lifetime, the greatest running back in college history, and he goes to the pros, you know, he has a few good years, but then he falls falls off. Oh, I mean, look, this is what happens with running backs, especially guys. He had a knee problem coming in, to, coming in um, slowed down a little bit, and he's never that big a guy, okay? And the league catches up to you. So, look, he had a good, solid career. He lasted, what? 10 years in the NFL. I mean, Roughly. again, he lived up to his, yeah, he lived up to his end of the bargain and, and, and did fine. Was he ever truly the electric player that we saw in college? No, but he probably never was going to be that electric player at the, at the NFL level because the NFL, you know, it, it the, the NFL is just too good to allow a guy like that to take over. And when you're not that big, I mean, he's not a 220 or 230 pound guy. He was 190 to 200 pounds. And I remember back when he won the Heisman, there were a lot of people arguing that Vince Young should have got it. What are your thoughts on that? I thought the right guy won the, the, won the Heisman. 
But Reggie, you... was spect- Reggie was a spectacular player. And so was Vince. Yeah, it's a, hey, look, when the final two guys are Vince Young and Reggie Bush, you know, if you remember watching those guys, I mean, they were amazing. That's a, that's a hell of a competition. You don't get, you normally don't get two players of that caliber at the same time. And then you saw Matt Liner as the third, he was the third one, right? Yeah, but he had won this, he won the Heisman the year before. So um, he had already had his turn, basically. Did, I mean, did, you th- yeah. did you think he earned the Heisman the year before? As much as most other quarterbacks that ever win a Heisman, yes. I mean, like they were sur- he was surrounded by so much talent at USC at the time. Um, but it's no different than Jason White when he was at Oklahoma. I mean, Jason White wasn't a great, great player um, and ended up winning a Heisman. There have been a couple of guys like that. It just happens with quarterbacks. And don't you think it's a shame and just terrible and so sad what happened to Vince Young, all that talent going into the NFL and – didn't really do much with it. Uh, I would argue that his talent was great for the college game. His talent was not great for the pro game. It's two different games. He was he was not never a great passer. And we heard a lot of stories about his mental illness and stuff. Do you think that played a strong effect in to him lacking in his pro career, or do, do you think he? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there's a certain amount of mental toughness, and I think there's a certain amount of, um, you know, he got himself in deep emotionally. And couldn't get himself out of it. I mean, I, I would say also that in some regards, um, and trying to transition, this is a good example of uh, of a kid from my most recent book, you know, uh, example of, you know, shut up, your kid's not that great, um, which is a book I just released about a month ago. And and Vince Young was told by his his mother and everybody around him, you know, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And when people got, when he got to the NFL and he was told this doesn't work, he couldn't handle it because so many, so many people had kissed his ass so much along the way and told him how great he was and told the world how great he was when it came time to having to fix the things that didn't work at the highest levels of the game. He was not mentally ready for it. So to me, that's a, that's a, staggering example it, did you all did you also make an example of johnny menzel in your book because it sounds like a similar scenario everybody always told him how great he was and then he went to the nfl and he really uh really lost it i, I think johnny was cocky on his own um johnny johnny did himself in as much as his parents made. i don't know the parent situation the one that see i i, I looked at three or four different quarterbacks and 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 again, this book is about not just about sports. Um, right. It's about sports entertainment, you know, music, um, you know, even, you know, college, going to, going to school and being a professional in, you know, even if you're in finance or you're a physicist or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, parents can get in the way a lot with a lot with kids and sort of either a parents live their own lives, live their lives through their kids way, way too much. Um, or, you know, B they try and make it a little too easy for the kids. So the kid's not ready when, when things get tough. And so I've seen that, those bad examples. The, the, the biggest one I use is Drew Henson and his father, Dan Henson, who was, you know, the biggest problem 
although I'm sure the Manziel one, probably there's some interesting ones in that one. But the good ones to me, the examples of fathers who knew how to stay out of the way, John Elway's, his father Jack, never coached his kid. Never never coached, you know, John in a sport, not in Little League Baseball, not in Pee Wee football, not in Pop Warner football, not in high school. Um, he, he let other people do that. He stayed out of the way and never wanted coaching to get in the way of his relationship with his son and kept quiet about how good his kid was. And then Tom Brady is a great example. Tom Brady Sr., who helped write the foreword to you know, this book, you know, shut up, your kid's not that good. Um, you know, he, he, you know, basically said, if we're going to have a a little Catholic league school basketball team and my kids on this team and the team's not very good, he's not, he's not going out there trying to pave the way for his kid to go get a bunch of other great players to make his own kid look better. He was the guy who said, no, let's make sure these other kids who are not very good play a lot so that they can get better and they can get passionate about playing. And he made rules for that team that the kids had to have a minimum amount of playing time, stuff like that. You know, that's the right mindset. You want to teach your kids to be passionate about the, the games that they're playing or, you know, whatever profession they're in, whatever they're chasing, you know, make them, make them really love it. And what, and I got to ask you, man, that's phenomenal that Brady, Tom Brady's father did the forward for your book, uh, have you spent a lot of time with the Brady family? I've um, spent you know a fair amount of time with Tom Brady Senior. We've, we've I've met him with him, you know, probably four or five times at his office in California. So, um, you know, he's a good man and got great stories and um, you know, obviously a great support for his son. But you know, when you when you talk to, I, I think it really comes through when you talk to Tom and you know his dad and you know that. You know, there's in there is a is a truly good person who is who is raised right. You know, who you know who understand this is how you treat other people, which is why you see the reception that that Brady gets from his teammates. And it's I think it's it's sincere, it's it's genuine, it's and it's emphatically warm. Um, the, the relationship he has with you know almost all of his teammates now. Nothing is ever 100%, but I think that you overwhelmingly see that between Brady and the guys he played with. Have you met, have you met Tom? Yeah, uh, a, a few times, you know, Super Bowls, playoff games, after games, run into him enough. I mean, you know, he, know, he knows enough that he knows my name is Jason. Um, again, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, he would return my call right away. But he had, he did help me. He returned my call when I asked for help writing the Elway biography, and he called me back with a, a great story about how he used to watch this video of Elway throwing when he was a little kid. Um, yeah, so he gave me a good like three or four minutes of a story, and um, and that was enough. And then it was off the phone and onto the next thing for him. And what does that feel like when Tom Brady calls you on the phone, man? The greatest quarterback to ever live. I mean, that's probably surreal, right? Well, you want to make sure you don't screw up the phone call. Let's just put it that way. You know, like, it's like the president calling you. Pretty much, you don't want you don't you know. You better hope that the line doesn't drop. Let's just you know for that. You know, make sure you take down, and you don't want to waste any time. You know, pretty much. You know, it's not it's not a, a time for a lot of uh, jibber jabber. 
um, you want to get to the point and say, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. If he wants to call, yeah, if he wants to talk even longer, then you just let him go. You know, like that's like him, guys like him, like Belichick. If they're on the line, you pretty much allow them, you know, allow them to determine how the conversation is going to go. And, and Jason, I have to ask you this, you know, in, in regards to um, all these other you know, different NFL players, NBA players. You've pretty much met everybody at this point in your career, right? Yeah, mo- most people, yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about guys like Drew Brees and a Peyton Manning and a Tom Brady and a Joe Montana, Dan Marino. I covered Dan for nine years when I was living in Miami. Uh, yeah, I've been around these guys. Now, Patrick Mahomes, you know, have not been around Patrick very much. You know, one time sort of in passing. But, you know, that's just that's the way that one's gone. And speaking of Dan Marino, it's a shame that he never won a Super Bowl. He, he went to one, but he never won one. It's a real shame. Uh, a- yeah. Yeah. Tough, tough era in the NFL. Tough, tough era for the AFC. Never had a team around him at that time. And then had to go through Elway, you know, to, to get to the Super Bowl. And that wasn't going to happen. And then Elway and then you know, Jim Kelly, who had a superior team up in Buffalo. Yeah, and like, what do you what do you think in regards to all these different quarterbacks that you've met overall? Are they mostly humble, you know, or what would you say about half and half, some arrogant, some humble? Uh, like nobody is completely humble. If you're gonna be on that kind, a if you're gonna be on that stage, yeah, um, it's not, it, you know, like there's there's too much at stake. If you're going to try and win, there's too much at stake. There's too much. You have to have belief in yourself and confidence and knowledge. Again, this is like we talked about Condoleezza Rice, okay, and her expertise. Um, those guys exude the same kind of confidence in their field. They know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. They know, they believe in themselves and that, that ability. So if you, ha- if you don't have confidence at that kind of level, which is extreme, yeah, you don't survive. Now, can that rub people the wrong way? Absolutely. Um, and are certain guys a little bit more difficult? You know, Dan Marino was never an easy guy to deal with, okay, because he was always in such high demand. Um, and he didn't really care about the attention. He didn't really like it. In, in his own way, Elway, while he was polite about it, didn't like all the attention. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, there's always a certain amount of they keep you at arm's length. Um, and some people are going to interpret that as rude. And some other people are going to say that it's, you know, um, arrogant. I prefer to say, look, try to live in your life doing that. Um, right. If you step on that field, you better be super confident, first of all. And if you're going to get that kind of attention, which is going to go with stepping on that field, yeah. then you're going to have to. You're going to have to deal with you know, a lot of media, a lot of reporters, a lot of people asking a lot of your time, and you're eventually going to have to say no. Right, and I, I and I gotta no, I lo- no, absolutely, I love that, and I have to ask you. It's it says right here you've been a selector for the Pro Football Hall of Fame since 2013. Speak on that a little bit. Uh, that's the one of the greatest honors I have have in my career, uh, being on that committee. Uh, getting a chance to be part of recognizing the most important players in the history of the game 
and discussing it and trying to determine who belongs in the Hall of Fame at what time. It's it's not easy. Um, it's a it's a great responsibility, and um, I'm really glad to have it. Um, I try not to take myself too seriously about it because I'm just I'm a selector. I'm not one of the people who's actually in the Hall of Fame. And I'm a selector because I watch a lot of football, and um, so uh, I think it's I think it is one of the most important things that I do, and one of the most th- important things I'm responsible for. Um, but it's not about me; it's about the it's about the process. And how many selectors are there at the Pro there Football are, Hall of Fame? There are now fifty. We are going to so the, there's fifty of you guys. Yes, there's fifty of us. There've been when I first started, there were forty six. Now we're up to fifty now. So there's there's not many of us around the country. Um, so it's again, it's a it's an honor and something to be taken incredibly seriously. And that you know, every year I um, oh, I don't know what happened, to Jason. Lost Jason for a second. Take we'll take a quick commercial. We'll come right. Right back. Give us a second. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. J- Jason, we got cut off for a second. Sorry about that. Um, but as you were saying, though, there's no, no sound on your end. Can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're good now. You're good. Yeah, sorry. I, I've i actually got to get get going here because we're, we're getting on close to an hour. But... Um, and I got to get back to some meetings. But uh, now being a selector for the Pro Football Hall of Fame is the thing I probably uh, take the greatest responsibility for. Um, and every year I talk to like 500 different people about the candidates who are about to go in and try and make sure that I take that incredibly seriously. So um, that's been a, a great part of, of my career and allowed me access to people again. It's allowed me access to people to tell the kind of stories that I was fortunate enough to tell in some of the books, like the one about John Elway. I wrote one about Chad Johnson, another one about Plaxico Burris, and what I was able to relate in my latest book, you know, Shut Up, Your Kid's Not That Great, which was a, was a fun, really fun read, and you can find on Amazon. And, and pin, pinpoint those other books real quick, talking about Ocho Cinco and also um, uh, Plaxico Burris. Uh, Plaxico, that Plaxico, was after. Yeah. It was Plaxico was right after they they won the Super Bowl with the New York Giants in 2000, uh, 2007 season, 
that was fantastic and fun. He was great. Ocho Cinco was uh, is a live wire now. Uh, he was telling his story was was pretty fantastic. Um, I wrote one with a guy who had a heart transplant, came back and played professional sports, played professional soccer, and uh, uh, helped write one with about Tony Siragusa, who has since passed away. But all of them been been fun. I would say my favorite book, obviously, was writing Elway. That one uh, that took me three or four years to do all the research for. So I really enjoyed that one. Did you spend a lot of time with Ocho Cinco when you were writing the book? Yeah, spent a few weeks with him. It was. Uh, what was that like, dude? I heard he's quite the character. Uh, he's quite the character. It's always say like he's not like he doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs, so he's really clean. But he's a different thinker. So you know. It's, Spent some time on Miami Beach, spent some time in Cincinnati, spent some time uh, in Fort Lauderdale with him. You know, a little bit of everything everywhere. Um, but I always say, um, I made this comment one time, if I had to have somebody babysit my kids, I'd pick Plaxico Burris. If I had wanted to have a play day with my kids, I'd pick Ocho Cinco. It'd be fun. It, it, that, they would have a good time. Is Plaxico <laughs> Burris the guy that shot himself in the foot? Uh, leg, but you're, you're along, you're along the thing. Like. Explain, explain that a little bit. I, th- that, that I wasn't there for, I wasn't there for that. It, like he lost control of the gun. The gun was in his, you know, he had, he had it in his pocket and he lost control of the gun and it went off and he's very lucky that he only shot himself in the leg. But Plaxico is actually, Plaxico is actually a really good guy. Um, it, it's, I really like Plaxico. He just grew up in a he grew up in a situation like a lot of guys um, that was tough. But I look, I, I really. And got last thing, last thing before you go, when you were wor- working at Bleacher Report, how long were you there for? Real quick, four, year, four years at Bleacher Report. Fun place, fun place to work. Really fun place to work. And, and do you what do you see for the future of sports media? I mean, do you think it's going to last a lot longer, or do you think the days of stuff like Bleacher Report, Yahoo Sports are limited? Oh, I think there's always the next thing coming down. I think the internet has created, has has been more explosive and more important than um, the creation of the printing press. So, uh, and sports is always going to be a place where people are going to want to state their opinions and see live information and talk about live information. So sports media, I will always be wide open and, and, out of control and fun so with that i really do i really and gotta to go conclude over. i gotta ask you this final question and this is very important and you're, you're actually gonna like this we were talking a little bit earlier about how when people tell someone they're great it gets to their head it screws them up but what about the examples of people like michael jordan and all these all these different people that constantly constantly get said they're great and how amazing they are and they continue on and they don't screw up their life and they're the best of the best. I mean, how, how do you separate the two from how we, how we, what we were talking about earlier, if that makes sense? Usually if people struggle early on in their lives, somewhere really important, it leaves an imprint on them. And so Michael Jordan getting cut from his basketball team when he was in high school stuck with him forever. He never forgot that pain. And Tom Brady, um, having to do videos to get recruited by colleges 
and getting overlooked and having people lo- you know lose the starting job to Brian Greasy when it was at the University of Michigan and almost have his job go to Drew Henson when he was at Michigan sticks with people. So yeah. I think having to overcome something really critical makes somebody great in the long term. And that's what that that's why you don't want to just, you know, tell somebody you, you don't want to create it artificially. But telling somebody there's they're great and paving the way for them all along is the worst thing that you possibly could do if you're especially if you're a parent. Let them under let them deal with struggle because if they're truly passionate about it, if they truly love it, they will find a way to overcome that and they will become great on their own. And Jason, tell everybody where they can connect connect with you, find your book, get involved, all that good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Jason Cole sixty two. Uh, you can find me. Uh, you can find my books on Amazon, including again the latest one. Uh, Shut up, your kid's not that great. Um, and uh, you can find my work at outkick.com. And uh, you know that's where I write about football. Oh, you're so. working. You're working for Outkick now. Yep, I am. Oh, I love that. And yeah. and and remind me again who the owner is because I see him on the news all the time on different media channels. Well, it's owned, it's, owned, it's owned by it's owned by Fox. So that, that's, what's that's, the that's guy's that. name though? That's the CEO or the, the main guy? What's his name? Uh, the guy who started it, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. A guy out of Tennessee. Um, yeah, uh, I know he uh, a guy had started, but I can't. I, I just I can't. I can't remember. Off okay, the top and, of my head. and 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 after after the life you've lived, this is the the final thing, the greatest this memory. The four, you, this is the, the greatest memory you have in sports <laughs> of all your of all your time. The greatest greatest thing you you ever remember in all these years. The greatest thing that the one that the one that imprinted me was um, well, seeing Elway win a, a Super Bowl against Green Bay was pretty amazing, and being at the game that time. Uh, but I uncovered a story once about a guy who had, was pretending to—he was 26 years old, pretending to be 16 years old. His name was James Hogue. He ended up living in Vail for a long time too, um, but he was a con artist, and I remember uncovering the con when he was in Palo Alto pretending to be a 16-year-old running in high school. And I called the uh, San Diego County Recorder's Office and tried to verify his identity. And they were saying, yeah, we have a birth certificate for this this person. And I said, well, is there anything odd about the birth certificate? And they said, well, yeah, it says he's dead. And when they said they said he was dead, like the, the adrenaline just poured over my brain. And I knew I had uncovered the first big significant story of my life. And basically it was a, a, a 26-year-old man who had t- taken over the identity of a kid who had died at three days of age and was pretending to be that 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 person as a 16-year-old. And um, it ended up being a fantastic story for me and one that um, turned into another fantastic story later on when he pulled the same scam at Princeton University. So... Uh, that's a long. That's a short way of telling you a very long story about that. Would be my favorite memory ever about covering sports. Excellent, excellent, uh, Jason Coleman. Thank you for being with us. I can talk to you all day. I got to get you back here soon, man. You've lived, anytime, Rory. Yeah, Make you've it. lived one hell of a life. God bless, man. Take care. Uh, we'll yeah, be, likewise, take care. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Tim Murphy. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. 
the my pillow guy and you're looking good still feeling good well just when you thought it couldn't get any better we've got the best pillow ever my pillow 2.0 wow it's so soft and smooth it's cool to the touch how did you do that well we took my pillows patented bill and combine it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, my pillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that my pillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. My pillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of my pillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed, and I wake up well-rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is going to give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side. Well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, MyStore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen, use the promo code, and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now.
Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or a dempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sauter and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest uh, is Dr. Tim Murphy. Uh, pleasure to have you here, sir. Your first time on. Uh, yeah, great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a background, a bio, how it all started for you. You've lived quite the life, man. Well, it looks that way by my resume, but again, it's a th great to be with you. I'm, I'm really honored to be part of your show. Thank you um, for coming. I'm a psychologist by training, and that's what I'm doing again now. I have um, worked that field for a few decades, but took a break for a while to be a state senator in Pennsylvania, to be a um, member of U.S. Congress, to be a member of the United States Navy, where I was in the Medical Service Corps treating post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury, spent some time in aircraft carriers and some assessment and selection with Navy Special Warfare, um, <clears throat> and am back to practicing now where I work primarily with veterans and first responders, policemen, firemen, um, paramedics, frontline uh, medical personnel who are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, and recently wrote a book over my shoulder here about dealing with trauma. Yeah, and so, so going back, you know, you spent all that time uh, in the Senate. How was that? How was the experience? Kind of. Well, yeah, the, you know, being in politics is interesting. And from the outside, it always like, oh, there's this rough and tumble thing, and what goes on. And it's changed a lot over the years. You know, it's fascinating by previous guests talking about changes in sports. Right. Um, politics has changed a lot too. Certainly, a lot of the work that is done is because people who behind the scenes work together and get things done. That doesn't make it into the media because in the media, it is the people on the far fringes that get the news, the ones who want to attack and, and, and snipe at each other. Just like life, people like working together in collaborative ways to work for consensus. That doesn't mean you have to give up your core principles and things like that, but it's there. And what happens now is people playing to the media and attacking each other. Uh, I've got some pretty significant things done in the area of... Um, mental health reform and healthcare reform, it, it came at a price because one of the things that happened is all that time I was in office, I mean, I'm just being honest with you, being away from home for 25 years is no way to live. Uh, and I always lived my life like, well, if I just join one more thing, if I just try one more thing, I got a great looking resume with, and that's just a sample of what I mentioned, my publications, my uh, being on the faculty of the School of Medicine, et cetera. But when you're not around and you're not taking care of yourself, you're not home, it takes a personal toll on you. And I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm humbled to say that I, I dealt a lot with my own depression and hence a lot of my motivation to write a book about how to come out of it. Yeah. And, and, and the book, so the book, 
goes into detail about, you know, what you experienced in your years in politics, what you did, you struggled with in your personal life, you know, distractions. I mean, just various things, right? Yeah, it is. I, you know, I figured you, you turned to Christ for a lot of your, a lot of your answers. And obviously, you know, uh, our Lord savior, you know, it, it can do amazing things. I'll tell you, I, I've been sober a year and a half. I am very fortunate. Mm. I am very blessed. And I, I credit my Catholic faith for, uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, have to, to have this success, you know? Well, you know what it's like. There's a point in which, as we go through life, the way I look at this story is that we have, there's times when the Lord says, okay, you got this. I gave you free will. You go ahead and work on that. And then there's other times when it's, um, you feel a little whisper in your ear, a little tap on your shoulder says, you shouldn't be doing this. Redirect. Go towards these other things. And you know what? We don't listen, particularly if we're struggling with trauma and pain in our own lives. We're looking for ways to delay, distract, distort, defend all those things away from it. Drugs, alcohol, wild times, um, whatever it is. We pursue those things because we want to numb the emotions. And then one day, if we're lucky, one day if we're lucky, we get smacked upside the head by the two by four. And God's saying, you've got to change your life. You're worth it. You've got to be, you got to do this. What I found in my own life is when I went through my own struggles is I started reading the Bible again and going back to church and saying, this time I'm really going to listen. And what I found is looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, who wrote more than half of the New Testament. And in that, when I really started studying the struggles this guy went through, you know, he was first out hunting down the Christians and seeing them killed. And then the bright flash of light, and he's told, you're not going to do this anymore. So the people who used to be his, his bros now are turned against him. And the people who he was going after don't trust him. He would he'd be run out of town. He was beaten with rods three times. He was lashed with a whip uh, 39 lashes five times. He was in a shipwreck uh, for two weeks in the Mediterranean Sea. Floated around a drift, piece of driftwood in the, in the Mediterranean Sea for a day and a half. Bitten by snakes. Stoned and left for dead. And I'm just getting started. And so I thought, here's someone who should have had all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. He should have been having nightmares and alcoholism and no relationships and and just a terrible, terrible life, but he didn't. And I'm thinking, well, someone must have written a book about that. Well, it turns out nobody did. Over 2,000 years, it isn't there. So I recognize I've got to learn from this. I'm, stop looking at myself. Stop looking at just psychology books and learn from him. And it turns out a lot of what we see in modern psychology about how to overcome troubles are biblical principles. So this book is about Apostle Paul. It's about people I've known. It's about my own mistakes. Got to be humble and admissive there. But the people that I write about in this book are biographical snippets of people who've been to hell and back and, and came out stronger. I mean, I'm sure with you, with your own issues of recovery, you're thinking, you know, a lot of times we slept, we slept back and say, I don't think I can do this. And our humility has to lead us to say, no, I've got to make it through. And, yeah. and I am so impressed with the stories of the people in this book who've come through and literally are stronger because of their trauma, not weakened by it. Right. And, you know, we notice uh, we were we were mentioning, you know, addiction and, and overcoming struggles. And in many of those cases, most of those people turn to Christ and it changes their life and it totally, you know, fixes them. And 
because they have to have something to turn to. They have to have something to believe in. They have to have something to have hope for, you know? Right, right. Something, something bigger than ourselves. Right. Something over the exactly. horizon. Exactly. One of the things I ask people when they tell me the story of their horrific traumas that they've been through. Oh, yeah. Or tra trauma is another one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I say to them, okay, that's your trauma. How do you deal with it now? And they'll tell me. Again, they ignore it or they do their adrenaline rushes, whatever they do, but they recognize something really powerful is missing in their life. And I say to them, well, where do you go for hope? Right. And those who have faith have a place to go. Those who don't say, well, I don't know, I just go day by day. We know that in the whole counseling process, those who have faith and religion do much better with post-traumatic stress disorder. Lots mm -hmm. of documentation. Those who think, well, this is it, there's nothing to do, they don't have any place to go to. but those who have hope and faith see there is something over the horizon. It isn't just blank space. It isn't just falling off the edge of the earth like they used to believe in Christopher Columbus, uh, pre-Christopher Columbus days. It's a powerful thing to for people to come to terms with. Yeah, and and, and I will say this that you know with with everything that no, I, I want to mention this. I've never really seen an atheist happy, if that makes sense. I, I've never seen somebody that doesn't believe in a higher power have their life together. I, I, I just always see a lot of misery. I, I see a lot of sadness. You know, is, do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, there's, there's a term. I think you're on the right path, right? I think there's a term that I use, and that is joy. We can be happy. We can laugh. We can do all those things and just believe in the moment. People can do that. But there's a certain joy that those who do not believe do not understand. That uh, in particular in those moments when we're really st really struggling and really alone, where do we find meaning in life? One of the things I talk about in this book is an appreciation for solitude. Solitude is a scary place for people who have faced trauma, depression, anxiety. Because when we're in solitude, we think, I, I don't like these thoughts rushing through my mind. Uh, thoughts of suicide and self-harm and, and despair. But what can also happen, though, is in solitude, when you recognize you're loved by God, always have been, regardless of our mess ups, we can come back. And that is when you can be totally alone, but totally comfortable with the company you keep because we realize I'm not alone. I am loved. There is hope for me. Even in my darkest hours, there's so still hope for me and I can move forward. Yeah. And, you know, I... I want people to understand that regardless of how hard their life may be, especially Christians, you know, we all have our bad days. Like, don't forget that Jesus was nailed to a cross and suffered misery. And, you know, he, he suffered something that no other person has ever had to endure. And he died for our sins. I mean, it, it can't get any worse than that. Yeah, paid it up front for us, which is important when we're struggling with, our own guilt and shame about our problems right. that we think, my gosh, I can't believe I did this to people. I feel that they betrayed me. I betrayed them. I was abandoned all this harm, whether it's the soldier who felt he could have done more in the battlefield, the fireman who was brought, who brought the limp baby out of the burning building, the paramedic who couldn't revive someone, the struggles that they carry with them, the guilt, the shame, all those things. A key element is being able to accept the past as the past. That's just tough to say, look, I cannot unset the sun. Once it goes down, that's it. I can't go right. backwards. And all the second guessing we do, if only I had done this, or maybe I could have done that, it does, it's of no value. You got to go back and say, wait a minute, I can deal with now. I can deal with my memories. I can make sure it's accurate. I can change the way I think and feel about it. 
I could stop reacting to my reaction, stop getting caught up in my own depression, anxiety, death spiral of I'm never going to get better. And, and saying that through faith, through my beliefs, I can move forward. Uh, but that is something that it takes some humility to do that. And part of that humility is being able to forgive. Uh, shame leaves us to the point of I'm broken beyond repair. Nothing can be done. I'm a mistake of the universe. And I think, well, that's great. We finally found the one person who could have been perfect and isn't. I say that sarcastically. The point is, we're not mistakes. But with shame, it doesn't give you anywhere to go. Guilt gives us somewhere to go. Guilt means to say, you know what? I've, I messed up. I messed up bad. Or these things happened to me. And I've got to go make reparations with the people I've hurt. Say my apologies. Ask for their forgiveness. They may not give it because they may still carry a grudge, but I can't carry a grudge towards them. I have to move forward. And this is the really cool thing about forgiveness then. It lifts that burden off of us. Now, I'm not saying if someone's done something bad, that doesn't mean you let them get away with it. It's still justice is there. But the idea of us carrying our own bitterness goes on forever. My father was a terrible alcoholic. We had 11 kids in our family. Yeah. We got one pair in my family too. Uh, Irish Catholic family, you know, it's uh yeah. There you go. Murphy, you know what? Um, oh, yeah, exactly. You're just like, yeah, yep, I, you can relate, you know. I know that when we would see an empty refrigerator but know my dad was gone all evening drinking, I think that could have been our food. Right. And so you get angry about that. And, we, and he was pretty violent towards my mother at times. Oh, Other times right. a wonderful, caring, loving, happy guy. Everybody loved him at the bars. Right. And we, we kept saying, wow, we never see that part of him. But there was times in my own life that I remember breaking up fights between my mom and dad. And there was times my sister told me that um, there was an event that my father was hitting my mom. I, I have no memory of it. She said, I came down and stopped them. I, I, I searched my memory. I can't find it. Because sometimes traumatic events are that overwhelming for us. But you got to wonder, does it lay somewhere in the memory and continues to know? Like, do we black it out? Do you think that's what it is? We do. Um, some of the soldiers I work with who have been in horrific, horrific events, we one of the characteristics that can happen with trauma is we do end up with a uh, amnesia for it. Now, that doesn't mean if we can't remember it, it did happen. It, could, it just means if there's witnesses say it did happen, we can't remember it. Right. It's something to work through. Once we start talking about it and acknowledge it, as soon as we put things into words, we can start getting control of it. When we don't want to control it, we don't want to do anything, the pain is miserable and people are going to do something to get rid of pain. Humans don't like pain. We'll yeah. run away from it, drink it, drug it, delay it, all those things. None of those are healthy getting back and understanding the core issues of how we have resilience and resistance recovery and welcome the Lord into our lives, it makes a massive difference. And this is coming from a psychologist. A lot of my colleagues are pretty agnostic. They don't want to talk about this, but I always ask the people I work with, do you belong to a certain religion? Do you practice a faith? Yes. Okay. Do you want to include that in our discussions? And they welcome it. So sure, this is how I spend every week. Yeah, I like to talk about it. It makes, they get better. Yeah, and note and notice how America was built upon Christianity values. The Constitution is based upon biblical biblical principles. You know, the, it's everything in the Bible relates to the Constitution. You know, for the most part, and our founding fathers were Christians. They wanted this to be, you know, a Christian themed country. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's what it is. And and I've also noticed when you, well, I, you wanted to say something about that real quick. Well, yeah, I want to say that, yeah, we, it's Judeo-Christian principles, and John Adams, I'm paraphrasing, 
said something like, our constitution was written for a people of faith. It's wholly inadequate for anybody else. And the thing about it is when people lose that sense of those principles, all Congress can do, all state governments can do is keep making more laws and more laws and more laws and more laws. And then a new group comes in and says, we don't like that law. We're going to ignore that. We're not going to enforce it. And then we have chaos in the streets like we have now. Yeah, when you take God out of the picture, bad things start happening. A lot of bad things. I mean, look at the... The, the the bad conditions in so many cities with so many homeless people walk by um, people just say well let's not hold people accountable if they break into buildings or steal things or steal cars we'll just say they have a tough time let them get away with it that's not the way things are it's supposed to be if you do something you're supposed to face consequences if there's no consequences there's no rules and we see that in, in why so many of our cities are deteriorating very fast and it's unsafe places and look at this too with covid with the um, alienation and the isolation that was forced upon people, particularly affected our adolescents, young adults, and the elderly. Told you can't go outside, you can't see people, you can't do things. What we ended up with was uh, now the outcome is we doubled the rates of depression, we doubled the rates of anxiety disorders, there's an increase in school phobia and school avoidance for kids, suicide rates have climbed, drug overdose rates soared. Um, there's not a lot of good news here because people were still trying to say, well, maybe we just need more counselors. Counselors can help, but uh, where do we give people that extra hope? And that's where religion comes in, faith comes in. Now, one other thing I want to say about that, Rory, and I'm glad you're willing and courageous enough to say that. I've got some bookstores that won't let me talk about this book. They say, we don't, we don't do those kind of things, um, which is a struggle for me um but these they, bookstores will gladly take on this lgbtq nonsense and all this transgender you know indoctrinating kids i mean it's terrible well yeah they'll take on the but god is so offensive to them i mean yeah. give me a break i mean these people are so disgusting and so repulsive well it becomes a christophobia <clears throat> i'd say if you want to clear a room of psychologists, just say Jesus, and they'll say, ah, oh, we're not talking about that. And I said, why wouldn't you want to talk about it? That's what people believe in. We can't be afraid of this. Let's learn about this. My book not only is written for people who are feel broken and the people who love them, family members, but quite frankly, also for counselors and clergy who need to learn how to help each other with this. We're, we can't make it on our own, and it, it requires that humility. But let's stop having the politics in the bookstore. There's one, my local library didn't want me to talk in there, too. I said, we don't want politicians talking. I said, well, then you better remove all your books on George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King because they're all politicians. They've all worked in the world of politics and helped. Um, stop censoring these things. Let us talk about it openly because that's the way to the cure. Yeah, and, and I wanted to, you were talking about something earlier. There's a lot I want to ask you. But for, first of all, you know, you're talking about forgiveness and how do we get more people to forgive in such an angry society? You know what I mean? And the lack of accountability is another thing that kind of goes into this forgiveness because too many people have pride. Too many people don't want to say they're sorry. Too many people don't want to admit when they're wrong. And people, a lot of people would rather hold grudges than actually just forgive. And, and, right. and, and I don't think enough people understand how much peace they would feel if they just forgive because they're holding on to all this extra energy and this animosity and this anger that is just eating them up, you know? I, I wish there was an easy... And one, one, just one thing. And they also, and they say in life, if you forgive, you know, if, you're th if you think about it rationally and properly, forgiving 
is actually doing it for yourself so you can have, you know, clarity and closure. And it's not for the other person necessarily. You know what I mean? Yeah, one of the great things about Christianity is Jesus taught forgiveness, not retribution, right. not an eye for an eye, not, uh, you know, he lives by the sword, dies by the sword. He said, hey, let's work forgiveness. When Peter said, well, how many times should we forgive? Is seven good enough? And he says, no, seven times 70, which means you keep doing it. But you're right, it, it heals the person who's carrying the grudge. Right. When we're holding a grudge, it's like we keep, it's like the old saying, you keep drinking poison and think it's going to affect the other person. It eats away with us. It's, it's, it's carrying tons of extra weight we don't need to have. But people confuse that with, well, if I forgive that person, that means they'll get away with it. That means they're, they're okay. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means it's not your burden. It's not our burden anymore. I mean, I had to work on forgiving my dad. That was tough. But it's also tougher for me to forgive myself and ask for forgiveness for the wrongs that I have done in my life. But those six words, God forgives, others might, I must. And that forgiveness is there. There's a cool song that came out a few years ago called Forgiveness by Christian songwriter Matthew West. And in Matthew West's song, he really tells us towards the true story of a woman whose daughter and a friend on their 21st birthday went out and a drunk driver killed them. Uh, he was sentenced to two terms of 11 years prison each. And the mother began to write to him. And they talked more and more. And she knew she couldn't continue on with a life of anger and hatred because that was no legacy for her daughter. She wanted to love her daughter, not be angry whenever she thought of her daughter. So she actually forgave. She met with him, says, I forgive you for what, what happened. She asked the judge, says, can you commute his sentence? Because he needs to get out there and work on talking to high school students about alcohol, not sitting in a prison cell. And that's what they did together. And, and in that song, it, it just talks about how it's lifted this burden from her soul so she could be happy again. Didn't take away all the pain as we have in our own lives where we have this, this issue of forgiveness. But by golly, it helps. It helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, being be, like I want to talk to you about just your days in in, in office, like day to day operations, kind of explain how that all went down, you know, kind of give us details and stuff like that. Sure. Because yeah, a lot of people wonder what we do all day. Um, my routine is because uh, I was also in the Navy while I was in Congress. So yeah. on some days I'd go off to Bethesda Naval Hospital or Walter Reed Hospital, see patients come back, throw my suit on and go to the floor and vote. But a lot of it is waking up early in the morning. My routine was wake up early, work out. Um, Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, he and I worked out together every day for five years. Uh, and then you start with the meetings and the meetings go on and on and on, trying to hear from constituents on issues, working on legislative issues, reading materials, um, maybe spend a little time on the floor votes. Uh, more committee meetings, having hearings, uh, the list goes on and on. And then late at night, reading and reading more. Um, I was, uh, at that time, I was the chairman of an investigative committee called Oversight and Investigation in the Committee on Energy and Commerce. Um, I was working two things. One, working my mental health reform legislation because mental health system in this country is disastrous and it contributes to homelessness and, and crime. And our jails are packed with people who are mentally ill. Our streets are filled with that. But I, I, I wanted to have reform. So I'm battling that issue and actually traveling the country because a lot of my colleagues didn't want to sign on to a bill like this. They, don't, they didn't want to pay attention to mental illness. It's not sexy enough. Uh, it doesn't get you on talk shows. But I'm working that, but also investigating other things. Here's a humorous aside. Um, I was doing a um, hearing on General Motors had a car called the Chevy Cruze. 
and this car had a problem with the ignition. Remember, we used to put keys in cars, and yeah. the key it would turn off, and it would it, what it would end up doing is turning off the airbags, the power brakes, the power steering. A lot of people died in in accidents or injured. Uh, Mary Barr, who, who was the chairman of the General Motors, came before me in a committee hearing. We talked through this. It was tough. Um, we weren't easy on it, but we had to probe these things. What was really strange is that that Saturday night, my phone starts buzzing. I'm asleep. It starts going off. And I said, geez, who's calling me at 1135 at night? Who's calling me at 1140 at night? 1145. I finally picked it up, and it was all these text messages. Good job on Saturday Night Live. What, and it, so you can look this up. Uh, I go on YouTube at uh, SNL Mary Barra, who was the uh, uh, who is the, the uh, CEO of General Motors. They did a skit on her and me in, <laughs> after in, in the Congress. That was the humorous high point of my career in Congress, uh, doing that. Uh, so, but it came at a timely moment when I'm battling these other things, feeling as I'm hearing these horror stories around the country about how people are suffering, uh, and work on those other issues too. SNL does a humorous moment on me but. it's funny man so so you so you served in state politics in pennsylvania right. before you went to congress correct but i was elected twice to the state senate in pennsylvania and there i also worked on health care reform because as a psychologist there was no psychologist there and i wanted to change some of the ways of insurance is working so um it was more friendly to people to actually see their doctor have the doctors make decisions and then transferring those skills on the federal level to working on uh, mental health reform. So if people who had schizophrenia or other serious problems, they could actually get help in a hospital. They could actually get medication. They could actually, um, uh, we can actually remedy homelessness. Um, and, but I don't know if you ever had to read back in school a book by Hemingway called Old Man in the Sea, where this guy's out fishing. He catches this giant fish. Finally, one day, the fish catch of his life. He's excited about this. As he's hauling it in, his, his hands are cut and worn, he's, he's, he's beat up, yet he gets this fish finally and he starts rowing, bringing it back to shore. But other fish start eating this fish. So by the time he gets back to shore, there's little left except the head and some of the carcass. And that's sometimes what legislation is like. And that's sometimes what all of our pursuits are in life. We go in with big dreams, pursuing these things. And along the way, once it looks like we finally got the big catch, other people will glom onto that starting attacking it, started grabbing onto it. It hurts, uh, but you know what? We can never give up and we have to continue to pursue. Well, what were your um, biggest accomplishments and things you're most proud of uh, serve, serving in the state Senate in Pennsylvania? Well, in the state Senate, it was um, uh, it was clearly the, the issue of getting this bill passed, the, uh, my, my Health Care Reform Act. But you probably heard, probably heard that saying, there's no limit to what you can do if you don't mind who takes the credit. In the long run, one of the guys who opposed my bill, uh, but reluctantly voted for in the Senate, it goes back to the House, but the House had so many amendments on it, they had to take it up. They, they said the bills are not gonna move. So um, you have to put an amendment 24 hours in advance, file it, and people didn't know because this other guy who opposed my bill had some innocuous um, in car insurance bill, is simply a one sentence, change this line in this. And because his was an insurance bill, because mine related to health insurance, they amended mine on. So then it comes back to the Senate, and he was the only sponsor. Senate voted on it, passed the bill. He took credit for it. My name is not on it anywhere. So a big accomplishment, but I don't get the credit for it. How does that, but how, how does he get away with that, though? That's the, that's the way the rules are. You, you have a sponsor for the bill. And if I had known... I would have been a co-sponsor of his bill. He didn't want a co-sponsor of mine. He was a bit cantankerous. 
may he rest in peace. But um, I didn't think about putting my name on his bill. And I, it had I put my name on his bill when it was over the house, it would tip somebody off that something was going on. But these amendments people were trying to put on, a lot of them were absurd things, some designed to kill the bill. But so the bill came back clean, but it was too late for me to put my name on it. How long did that piss you off for? I can imagine that ate you up for a long time. Just Harry, oh, I'm still like, talking about it. Huh? Yeah, it, it annoyed me. But, you know, the same thing happened in Congress where I had this bill, fought hard for it. Um, uh, our chairman uh, finally, finally came to the floor. My bill passed 422 to 2 in the House. You don't see bills pass that much. I mean, if, if we had, a, if we had a, a, a bill in front of us that said today is Friday, there'd still be opposition. Uh, and, and the opposition here was some people said, I don't think we should be voting on bills like this. Nonetheless, it passes, goes over to the Senate, gets amended onto another bill because they have to find which bill is going to do this. And I remember Lamar Alexander said, your bill is going to go on to this other bill because the other bill isn't going to move unless your bill's on it because yours is the one people want to vote for. But the guy whose bill it was, he was a chairman. So he outranked me. So my bill went on his, passes the Senate, comes back to the House. We vote on it. My name's not top on the bill, too. So, uh, and I remember going to the bill signing when President Obama signed it, went over to the White House. And it, it was a little bit tough because all the people on the stage taking a bow for this bill, I was watching them from the audience. I was not allowed up there. Um, it's just the way it is. Uh, and you just have to suck it up and say, all right, you know, the bill got passed. I didn't get everything I wanted, but we got everything we got in there we needed. Um, and that, that's the way politics goes. I just, uh, but uh, let me tell you something. It did hurt. I, I'd, be, I'd be telling a lie if I didn't say it didn't hurt. But I have, to, I have to get over that. And I can't remain bitter. So it and, is. and Tim, like, I, I want to ask you, what made you jump from uh, Pennsylvania politics and want to go serve in Congress? Well, you know, there's, there was two big jumps. One was from being a psychologist. I worked in hospitals, taught in a school of medicine, had a private practice. And then going into politics, because I thought there's things that need to be done. And every time I talk to an elected official about it, their eyes glaze over. They don't understand what we need for healthcare reform. It's not government takeover. It's government cleaning it up so people can get what they're supposed to get. But then I realized on the state level, there were some things I just couldn't do. And I needed to move upward in Congress. And each time I said, man, do I really want to do this? I kind of like being home. I, this is too much, but I did it um, and had accomplishments for it. But it was each time trying to do more. I didn't need a title. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't need that. Uh, I needed to have some things done uh, because, you know, I'm never going to be an extremely wealthy guy because I'm not up pursuing those things. Um, I'm hoping people buy my book so at least I can get a dollar a book out of that. But, it, but I, I just saw that it's one of those things I feel I've got to help people because, as you know, when, you, when you've been at the bottom um, and you know how much it hurts, you know how valuable it is to have people, whether they're strangers or friends, to reach down and say, come on, I want to help you get out of there. And, and you know, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. It's more important. Yeah, and, and I, got, I want to ask you uh, in regards to um, the current Republican Party uh, right now, who do you like for 2024? Oh, <laughs> I want to stay out of that because um, for a big reason, I, I want – people to look at my book for what it is. And I mean, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you, I, uh, I've never voted Democrat in my entire life, but I, I've already officially endorsed a few weeks ago, Kennedy, uh, for 2024. I love everything he's saying. 
He's tackling tackling a lot of these big pharma issues. You know, oh, Senator about, Senator Kennedy. Uh, no, no, um, Robert Kennedy Jr. Oh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that that's who I'm all for, man. I mean, he's talking about you know going after the Fed, going after the FBI, going after the CIA. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I've never heard anybody fight harder uh, against big pharma than him. I mean, he's talking about all the right things. Uh, he's against all this war madness going on right now. Um, but you, you were going to say something, sorry. Well, I, what you're talking about is very important. That is talk about the issues, not the personality. What's happened in modern politics is people want, it's just the politics of personality and the politics of being anti-party. Uh, that's what feeds a lot of media. That's what feeds uh, cable TV. Um, and depending upon what you want to hear, you know what station to go hear it from. And you have to jump back and forth and say, okay, what's the total truth here? And where do I find it? But you, you can't even trust social media if that too is censored. Uh, but my recommendation to people is decide what's the most important to you and your family and make sure you communicate that to elected officials. And if you feel they're not paying attention to it, if you feel they're ignoring it, or if you feel they're against it, then you work for somebody else to try and get them in there. It's tough. Congress is 435 people in the House and 100 in the Senate. And it's tough to convince half of those, more than half of those in each chamber to do this and the president. And right now with the split between the House and Senate, it's hard to get things done and hard to get an agreement done. But issues that people continue to push can get done. It took me five years to get my mental health, actually more than that, to get my mental health reforms passed to the point where I remember at the time, Speaker Paul Ryan <clears throat> would tell me, says, Tim, you have to narrow everything you do and just choose one thing and push it to the point when other members come to him as speakers, says, push it to the point where people say, Speaker Ryan, will you move the Murphy bill so he can get off my back? Because so, you have to do that. Uh, and we, we developed a groundswell of opinion among America excuse me, a groundswell of expression of opinion among, among America, because our polling told us about 85% of people would support mental health care reform rather than the current system, give them some pills, knock them out of hospitals, let them be homeless, put them in jail, walk by them and ignore them. There's a lot of suffering that takes place there. So I look to those issues. Right. And, and like, like I said, you know, I, I've always voted Republican. Um, but I, I do like to, I, I don't cherry pick. I like to call balls and strikes. And I, I have to ask, how much of Reagan closing the mental hospitals has to do with the crisis going on today? This is a great question. Thank you for knowing that because uh, people blame Reagan. But here's the thing. The California legislature at the time voted by strong majorities to close them down. And at that time, you had this perfect storm between people who thought government is spending too much and let's get out of this business and the ACLU saying shut them down. But it preceded that in 1963, the last bill that John F. Kennedy signed as president was to change from a system where it is the big hospitals to the community health systems. So a long time passed between then and, uh, and, and Johnson and Nixon and Carter, who had various levels of having the federal government take over things. Uh, Reagan was governor, I think, when Carter was president. He said, we're not we can't be doing this anymore. We need to get people a different kind of care. What happened was states didn't put into place what they were supposed to with community mental health. But what did happen is back in the 1950s, there was about half a million psychiatric hospital beds in our country. Now, 38, 35,000, because hospitals are limited to 16 beds. You can't function with those sorts of levels. And uh, what, what happened is then there's another element too, and that is people with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar illness, there's a quality that some of them have called anosognosia. It's, it means they're not aware that they're ill. People with strokes, 
uh, some people with strokes, some people with Alzheimer's also have this. They're not aware. So when, when an elderly woman is walking down the streets in the snow in January and she's asked what's going on, she says, well, I have to get to school. My teacher's looking for me. You know there's something there. It's a brain deterioration. Such people, about half of people with schizophrenia and bipolar will not be in any treatment at all. And there's disability rights groups, which I disagree with, who say, well, that person should have the right to refuse treatment. But would we say the same thing about someone with Alzheimer's? Would we say the same thing about someone with, with stroke or some brain deterioration? No, because we know that medication and treatment can help them. But in, in our effort and our zeal to close down bad, massive psych facilities, would have thousands of people, many who were abused and they needed to close, we didn't replace them with a compassionate and efficient system. So, uh, and then we say, well, you have the right to refuse treatment. And so you see a lot of people on the street, a lot, I think third to half of people were homeless, have a severe mental illness. Uh, and then they start taking drugs and then you add drugs to that and that's a problem. When you look at some of the mass shootings, now I'm not, I'm not saying all people with mentally ill are violent and the vast majority are not, but someone with severe mental illness with any hints of propensity to violence, um, as long as they're not an immediate threat to kill themselves or someone else, they will not be forced to go in a hospital. But if they're not in treatment, um, even though we're talking about one or two percent of the population are people with severe mental illness, it can still be about a third of the mass killings. That's, and I look upon that as what an awful position government has put people into. We do not feel safe because they say, well, rather than force you into treatment, we're going to force you into jail or into the streets and have other problems, then we're gonna scratch our heads and say, well, maybe we should take his gun away. Well, maybe you should get a treatment. Uh, it's, it's a terrible misuse of what government has done here. Right, and I mean, why don't you think they address this enough? And why don't you think they pass legislation that can help, you know, these citizens that are in dire need? You know, it's, I mean, they spend all this other money, all, all this other money and all this other useless shit. I mean, it's just crazy to me. Well, I'm going to uh, Washington, D.C. in the next few days with other members. I'm on a board of an organization called um, Schizophrenia and Psychosis uh, Alliance uh, of America. And we're going to be lobbying Congress to spend some money on this uh, to say we need more hospital beds. Stop shutting them down. We need uh, laws that allow doctors to contact family members when they see someone come in with who is in the middle of a mental health crisis and let them know so they can provide history and background. Um, we need to uh, make sure there's treatment out there, not just dump and ignore the homeless or those who are jailed, but really help them. It, but here's what happens. It, when my bill was, was, uh, went through, and I said, just to have something like having more hospital beds, the Congressional Budget Office said, well, we think this is going to cost $60 billion over the next 10 years, 10 or 12 years. I said, where do you get that number from? And they said, well, we assume that if that's out there, every state will take every person and put them into federal hospitals. Well, it was ridiculous. So with some pressure, they said, well, instead we think it's gonna be 1.2 billion a year for the next 10 years. I said, where did you get that number from? They said, well, we just assumed it was a percentage. So the, the organization I work with, it's like uh, Schizophrenia Psychosis Alliance, um, just did this study. And it came out that in the year 2020, so I, I get $1.2 billion a year to help people be back in hospitals. This shows here how crazy uh, Washington is with numbers. Our study showed that the annual cost of dealing with schizophrenia, not necessarily treating, but people with schizophrenia, you have the criminal justice system involved, you have jails, you have sheriffs, you have medical care because 75% have another chronic illness, you have housing, you have so many different levels there. The cost in 2020 of dealing with schizophrenia in this country was $282 billion. 
is staggering. And we're saying, can you spend 1.2 billion a year so we can get them in hospitals? Couldn't get it through because, oh no, we can't do that kind of spending. So a bill we're calling for now is to have Congress really do a thorough study. So they want to trust our independent study. Okay, do your own, do a thorough study and that way spend it wisely instead of spending not at all. Um, it, it, it's like saying, hey, my car has a check engine light on and it says it's low on oil. I think I'll drive it for another 5,000 miles instead of spending you know, 50 bucks and getting an oil change. This is where we are with this. And it's so pitifully harmful to people. Right. And during this whole pandemic, I like to call it the scamdemic, uh, th these past few years, you know, we've seen depression skyrocket, suicide skyrocket, all these different, you know, diagnosis. Um, and and it, it's crazy to me, you know, crimes way up. And this all factors into mental health. And it's it's terrifying. It's really sad. You know, divorces, you know, um, people just losing their minds. I mean, this world has gone mad like I've never seen it before. It has. And the, the unfortunate perfect storm that is gathering, the clouds are getting worse, is then people say, well, can government come and help me? And I'm willing to give up my freedoms. Let government promise me more. Give me anything. And that's disastrous. Time and time again, when you see countries fall apart, and instead of saying, uh, you have to learn to take care of yourself, charitable institutions help you, we'll help them. But when people say, I'm willing to give up my freedoms, if you'll give me some comfort, it doesn't go anywhere. Look at what's happened on our southern border. Uh, since 2020, 5.8 million documented encounters have occurred. That's documented. How many more cross the border that we don't know? Right. Even government agencies say that there is a high incidence of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma, especially among women and children, suicides and drug abuse among people who come over here after a while. I mean, think of what they went through in their countries. And they come over here and we say, we're going to drop you off in a strange city. Maybe kids won't have anybody. You just drop you off there. There's a high incidence now of human trafficking among young girls and boys. Uh, horrendous. Uh, and so what this is doing is it's, it's uh, straining a system that is already strained. We don't have enough counselors now to help those with a suicide and uh, depression rates and, and anxiety rates now. And we're bringing more people in. Um, and I, I really worry about that. Uh, I'm not anti any other group that's out there, but to say that uh, we're not gonna take care of the people who are here and push them aside, we just don't have enough for them. Um, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable to me. It's pretty crazy, man, here in California where I'm at. I, I mean, I'm in Palm Springs, California, but the state of California is giving out unemployment uh, $300 a week to anybody who crosses the border. They don't even have to have a job here and they don't have to have any previous history of a job. It's crazy. Well, somebody has to pay that bill and- Yeah, and, and that's and that not to mention all the other food benefits they already get, uh, the health benefits they already get. Um, you know, California is like the most illegal friendly place in America, sadly. And we've struggled in California when we're working to get my bill passed, that some of the communities were very supportive. Orange County uh, at that time was very supportive. But yeah, some other Orange County is pretty conservative, yeah. Uh, but, but they were willing to say, yeah, we have to have some people, you have to have courts willing to say, you're gonna get care. Um, have housing that is true housing, that you're not just gonna be in a house and say, all right, do whatever you want. But if you're mentally ill, we're gonna make sure you take your medication, make sure you get your care, because people can do better. Um, 
but the idea of just uh, of over, uh, overwhelming a system that is already overwhelmed uh, and, and giving out benefits without work, I think it actually degrades the human condition. Uh, whether it's a child who is spoiled or a child with bulldozer parents who says, well, yes, my child came in 10th place, but they should still get a trophy equal to the first place trophy. We've got to deal with stress and problems and learn to sometimes suck it up, buttercup, and get better. Life is tough, and it's not fair, and we do not do well if we simply have someone give us the benefits without learning to work for it. Uh, that's actually pretty harmful to developing our own self-confidence and our own self-esteem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and PTSD... Is it the worst you've ever seen it right now? I think it's growing more among some of the population at a couple of levels. Certainly, it's always been there for soldiers, um, whether, whether it was called battle fatigue or combat fatigue or, or war weariness, whatever it was, it's been there. And generally among people who are actually in combat, about 20% will have it for a while. By talking through it, by getting help, many can, can do much better. Um, what's happened now is the words are thrown around for the general population. People say, oh, I had this bad thing. I must have PTSD too. It's supposed to go towards people who had a severely threatening event, really threatening their life, not just hard times. We can have stress disorders because stress in our country right now is very high. It keeps being piled onto us and we don't have any sense of how does this end? How does it get better? Uh, more things are going on and those are stress disorders. But uh, PTSD and people self-diagnosing work in that, that is growing. But here's the thing about this. I worry that people become their diagnosis. We, we, should do, we shouldn't do two things. One is don't ignore depression and anxiety. Don't say, well, that person's just softy. They're not tough enough. Suck it up and you can do better. No, that's not it. When I say toughen up, that means understand the stress is going to be there and work at it. So don't ignore it and don't put people down. But the other thing is to assume that no matter what happens, that you can't handle it and you're traumatized and everybody's to blame and you need help. That's just not a good, healthy way of being either. Going full circle back to my book, you know, I had never heard Paul the Apostle whine and say, why are they picking on me? Why are they beating me with rods? Why are they with me? Can't they just understand? <clears throat> he said, why are they going to chop my head off? Why are they threatening me to die? And he recognized he's standing up for something he believes in, to work on people's eternity, not just that afternoon. And there's other people. There were times when, like a silversmith or others said, hey, you know, if he keeps talking like this, they're not going to buy our idols. So let's beat him up and run him out of town. And or, or there's everyday stories like happened today too. He didn't succumb to it. He didn't give in. He, he got better because of it. And I want people to understand, have hope, get some strength, build on that. Yeah. And Tim, I want to ask you, you know, in regards to the, these, I want to ask you about Trump's presidency. How, how do you analyze? Cause I voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. Um, I think his biggest mistake, um, I, cause I, I call balls and strikes, uh, something that turned off a lot of voters, a lot of his supporters. And I was with him from day one. I mean, I, I was very, I was very pro Trump ever since he walked down the escalator. I will say though, um, the endless printing of money, the, sti you know, the stimulus checks operation warp speed, I think is the biggest crime against humanity. Uh, ever. Um, and, you know, he was behind that. Um, I uh, also want to mention um, there was there was one other thing, but just Operation Warp Speed, I think, is the worst thing ever done by any political administration. Um, I don't know how you feel, uh, but everything else that he did up until that point, I thought he was the greatest president ever. I thought he was doing phenomenal things. 
you know, obviously he could have toned it down with some of the, the language and certain, you know, uh, phrases he would make and, you know, the way he would uh, go after certain people. Uh, but other than that, I, I, I love the guy. But Operation Warp Speed really, really rubbed me the wrong way. We all, we all know how long vaccines take to make. This was a rushed scenario. Dr. Fauci should have been fired. These bureaucrats, these swamp creatures should have never been making the decisions like they were. Um, and you know what? People want to say Trump was bullied into this. I, I can't buy that. I can't buy that because at the end of the day, he had the ultimate say. And um, I really think um, people like Jared Kushner, who was one of his top advisors, really held back the America first conservative agenda. And uh, I, I can name a lot of other names that were surrounding him that were not good influences. And we saw more hirings and firings in that administration than I think in any other one. Well, I... <laughs> I'm going to be cautious about commenting on the politics. I'll comment on the policies. Okay. And that, and that is that um, whoever runs for president, wherever they're from, I mean, you're in California, Gavin Newsom's looking at that too. Um, there's a number of things. The American people. Oh, oh the, other, the, the other thing I remember, the thing I wanted to say that I thought was the, a, big, a big mistake that Trump did, and most agree with this. He had interest rates at pretty much 0%, which pretty, which really screwed the economy. And it's part of the reason why we're in the situation we are now. And obviously the endless printing of money, which he did start uh, back when COVID started uh, with the stimulus checks and all this other stuff. And he raised the debt significantly. Uh, not enough people talk about that, but go ahead. Sorry. Well, you're, you're right. Those are things that I think the American people need education on civics. And that printing money, I mean, I've had people say, well, if we run out of money, why don't we just print more? Um, that, that's what causes inflation. Uh, that's what causes weakening of the dollar. That what, that's what contributes to other countries making stuff instead of us. Uh, it's hard to find things manufactured in the United States. They're made in uh, Canada, excuse me, they're made in Mexico and, and uh, uh, in the, in, uh, over in uh, China, et cetera. And that hurts us long run because then we lose those jobs, we lose those income, we lose that pay. But the, the thing that I, I continue to hear from people, and I recognize it for too, is that when people are involved with the politics of personality, attacking each other, calling each other names, it's silly. Uh, and unfortunately, it's become so common that people don't even notice it anymore. The absurdity of the comments that people have um, between presidents and former presidents, it goes on and on. I long for the days when former presidents do what George Bush did, says, I'm going to my ranch, have a good time, call me if you need me. Uh, and let other people do that. But the, the attacks, the brutality goes on and on. And then people choose sides based upon that as opposed to the policies. And then they're willing to ignore policy decisions because then they're so caught up on the personality of the person that they don't see that anymore that where there's errors or difficulties there. No president is perfect in what they've done. They may make decisions or policies while they're there, the same as members of Congress do, and later find out uh, because uh, looking backwards in the rearview mirror is always a clearer picture than looking forward. Um, so some mistakes are made. And as the question goes, if I knew then, what I knew now, would I make the same decisions? Probably not. But um, I want candidates out there going to talk about what they're going to do for America, not just how they're going to attack somebody else as a person. And I want, uh, what do you think about DeSantis? Do you like what he has to say? Oh yeah. I like Ron DeSantis when he was in Congress. I, he was also in Navy. I was in Navy too. 
Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. His locker was next to mine, the locker room. I, thank you for your service, by the way. Well, well, Rory, you were worth it. Thank you. And, uh, and I go ahead, sorry. No, I say that purposely because uh, when people, you know, it is a sacrifice for the 1% of us who did serve to serve. Yeah. And we do it for the people, the other 99%. And, and it's important for you to know yeah. that we believe in you. So, um, and I always tell people the real heroes are you guys who put your blood, sweat, and tears on the line for our freedom, safety, and security. It's not these athletes. It's not these celebrities. It's the men and women in uniform who go to work every day, kissing their families goodbye, not knowing if they're going to come home. You know what I mean? Yeah, I had the um, the distinct honor and privilege of working with them when I worked at. Walter Reed Hospital on a traumatic brain injury unit. And I would see these people would come back missing big parts of their brain or from a shrapnel or, or head injuries or blast injuries. The, the real heroes, I was honored to work with them and help them come back. Um, I didn't face that kind of trauma, but uh, it's still, we recognize that long after the war is over, 20, 30, 40 years, there's people who still struggle with the wounds of war. And so we should never stop thanking them. Uh, Memorial Day is coming up soon. And, and on that, too, we also want to be thanking not just it's not when we thank those who served. We thank those who died. We thank the family members who have had someone sacrifice because those years someone is serving. They're not home. They miss the birthdays. They miss the anniversaries. They miss the graduations. They miss doing homework with someone or feeding them meals or going out for ice cream um, while they're out protecting our nation or even serving to potentially protect our nation. And Tim, doesn't it drive you nuts how the LGBTQ community gets an entire month and the veterans only get a few days? Well, look at there's a number of things. There's Mother's Day. There's Father's Day. There's Christmas, which is Jesus's day. Um, uh, but some other groups get an entire month, too. Uh, veterans get one day for Veterans Day and one day for the day they uh, Memorial the day, they Memorial die. day right? Yeah, all those things. Uh, now, right now we're in May. It's Mental Health Month, but there will be a Suicide Awareness Day. There'll be a PTSD Day. At least at those times, we're recognizing something. But um, I look upon some of those things. Because of the work I do now with veterans and first responders, it's every day for me. Right. And, and I recognize, for example, paramedics tell me the worst day of your life is every single day they show up for work of what they're saying. Um, and let's, we don't have to wait for government to tell us it's someone's data. We don't have to wait for parades. Just make sure you're aware and thanking people for what they're doing for us. And it's, it is fair to say, though, they only do get two days out of the year. It's Memorial Day and Veterans Day, right? That's right. That's right. It, I mean, how shameful, Tim. How shameful. Well, the, the only other group that really pushes it more is the Marines' birthday, more so than the Navy birthday. Boy, when the Marines have their birthday, but they share it with Veterans Day, November 11th. You ask a Marine what day is their birthday, they'll tell you, they'll tell you that, <laughs> what they're doing that day, too. Um, but at least among the groups that serve, there's a great camaraderie, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, Space Force, uh, great camaraderie among, uh, among all of us that are uh, happy to do it um, despite the struggles. Oh, by the way, I should mention this, too, about the suicide rates among those. It's oftentimes talked about the 22 suicides a day among veterans. That is a, um, and then in 2019, it suddenly went down to under 19 a day or 18 a day. I need to expose the lie on that. It was at that time the Veterans Administration said, well, we should only be counting the deaths of those who run active duty, not National Guard and not Reserve. As it turns out, Army National Guard has the highest suicide rates. So Guard and Reserve, and why is that? Because they have their daytime job, 
They also have the reserve job. At any time, they be called. They can be called up. So they got to keep their training sharp. They have strains because they're homeless with family. Um, they have to continue on the, all their military training, but they also have guns at home. And when a person is thinking of suicide, lethality is usually associated with a firearm. So guard and reserve, because they go home, they have those. But here's what the VA said. We're only going to count those who are in active duty. So if you're a National Guard and you're reserve and you never on active duty and you kill yourself, we're not counting you. I was speaking at an Army base um, this week and I asked the audience, how many of you have never been on active duty? And about 10% of the hands went up. I said, well, by the way, don't kill yourself because the VA says we're not going to count you. There is a bill that's coming up before Congress. It hasn't been introduced yet. It's by Congressman Reschenthaler and Congressman Kilmer. It's a bipartisan bill. And they want to fix this and say, no, VA, you're going to count these again. And the VA's response, I think, was something like, oh, we have the data. We're just not reporting it. Well, that's falsification. Don't tell us it's dropped from 22 a day to 18 and make it sound like something good's happened. You serve, you count. In fact, there's other organizations say the, the suicide rate is probably higher because they're not counting drug overdose uh, or other things like that. Maybe as high as 30 some a day, 30 or 40 a day. And Tim, you bring up the VA, something that has been a problem for so many years. Veterans have to wait months for health care uh, to, get, to get seen for treatment. When is this ever going to get fixed? Because they always talk about legislation they pass, but it doesn't seem like anything ever changes. Well, I know that they've, they've cut, they've reduced some of these wait lists. I mean, a few years ago, we found out they were throwing away files and pretending as, in order to hide that they, people were still waiting. Those were supposed to have been reformed. I've not been watching from the central area to see how much of that's done. I used to be on the Veterans Committee, but I'm not. Um, but what happens, too, is that there's a lot of turnover in VA hospitals, and people have a hard time seeing the same doctor, the same psychiatrist. I mean, some of my clients say that in the last few years, every time they go back to the VA, they see a different psychiatrist who then prescribes more medication to them without really understanding them. We need continuity there. We need more people who are veterans who are serving veterans. Um, God bless the people who are doing this, but there's a different uh, expression that veterans treat someone who also has put a uniform on. Um, so what happened is continuity. It's making sure they're don't keep spending money. I'm a believer that one of the things the VA ought to do, VA ought to do is don't assume that all care can come from a VA hospital building. There was a bill that was passed some years ago that said if you live more than what 40 or 50 miles from a VA hospital, you could go to a local doctor. What the VA says, well, we're going to put these little mini clinics around, and so see there is something near you, so therefore you can't just go somewhere else. We'll pay the bill. But um, what happened was, but if a person needs to see a psychologist, but they have to go all the way, you know, drive 50 miles to see someone, they're not going to go. But the VA says, yeah, but we have an orthopedic center in your city, so therefore we don't have to pay for something for somebody else. They played these loopholes with it, and, and that was a shame. And that added to the delays of people not getting care. Of the 20 million, 21 million veterans in the United States, only about 9 million use the VA. Most do not because they either aren't eligible, it's too far for them, uh, they're dissatisfied with services, or they don't trust enough to go use the services. And when you were at Walter Reed, you probably saw every sort of scenario, right? I mean, that's like one of the main hospitals. That's where the president goes. That's where a lot of the veterans goes that are badly injured. I mean, it, day to day, it was just probably always something, you know, different, right? Yeah, I saw some. Yeah, it was very different because I was there during the peaks of the war. Uh, I also was in a rollover accident in Iraq, not as a, not as a Navy, uh, not as a sailor, but as a, a citizen. I was on a congressional trip. And of course, I received some of my follow-up care there too. 
And I got to see also the medical system in Baghdad and Balad and, and Lanchtal from a horizontal position. Um, we spent a trillion, a couple of trillion dollars in Iraq. We never bought an MRI machine out there. Um, and I had some paralysis and, and a concussion. But it's, what a superb hospital system it is. I don't have enough praise for it. It is amazing the quality of the people that were trained there and what we've done. So I, we, I don't think we slacked there. Initially, Walter Reed Hospital had a lot of problems. They closed it, built a new center. Um, it's great. Now, obviously, we have a lot of empty beds there because, thank goodness, we're not fighting a war. But when it comes up again, sadly, it probably will again. Um, we'll be more ready for it. And when you, you were involved in that Iraq attack scenario, uh, talk about that. That sounds terrifying. Well, it, it was actually, I, we had a meeting with, I think it was General Casey, and we came back and they put us in this up-armored minibus. They affectionately called an ice cream truck. Heavy armor, a white boxy thing. And as we were coming down the road, another vehicle, um, I didn't really see what was going on. I was sitting in the back. There's bench seating. Another vehicle, guess and came too close, and maybe the driver went off. He hit something, and we flew up in the air. And came down hard and then rolled. And we we're bouncing around on the inside. Um, smacked my head, uh, concussion. I think I was out for just a second or two. Some temporary paralysis of my arms um, were there. Uh, and I was doing this medical checkup on myself. Like, hey, my toes work, my feet work, ankles work, knees, legs, hands. Whoops, hands aren't moving, arms not moving. Doing my own self assessment. But then people saying, you got to get out of there because this could be an ambush. Okay, um, so crawling out of there, people are, are, this is the middle of the night, I should say, too. So it was dusty, it was sandy, it was dark. Um, but the care that myself and another member of Congress received there at the time was superb. Um, quite frankly, though, when you're, when you're hurt there and you think of what other people have gone through, a natural inclination is to feel bad and feel guilty about it. Like, gosh, shouldn't they be using this helicopter on somebody else? I mean, we weren't holding anybody back who was wounded. But still, I remember lying there in this helicopter uh, stacked up there and being my litter and thinking, wow, who else has been here? Has someone been here who didn't make it? Uh, and that's a very sobering experience to go from there and then from um, Baghdad to, to Balad, a staging area. And I remember they had me alone in another room. And I said, can you not leave me alone? Can I go? And they said, well, we'll put you in our Hall of Heroes. And there I was strapped to this bed, neck brace. But they gave me a mirror on a stick and I could turn around and look around the room and I could see all these wounded and all these incredible doctors and nurses and corpsmen putting people back together and stabilizing them so they could be put in this massive C-17 plane and flown to Germany. We had incredible survival rates for people who were wounded in this war uh, versus uh, you know, most people died in the Civil War and many died in World War II and even in Vietnam. But just um, jaw-dropping professional performance among the medical teams in our military. Incredible. Yeah, and, and how long did it take you to recover from that incident? Well, I had, um, I had a lot of pain for a while, for several months. And uh, what happened, however, is uh, I didn't, I was kind of spaced out because they kept giving me morphine for the pain. Uh, and then when I came back, I think it was Percocet um, huh. and fentanyl. And what else did they give me? Um, Oxycontin, Tylenol. Uh, I was pretty high. From that. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and I really just said, I can't do this anymore. I couldn't function. I couldn't think day to day. So I stopped it all. So I'm just, I can't do this anymore. And I think I was on that for maybe a month or two. Um, yeah. But that was back in the days. They said, oh, don't worry. You can't get addicted to this stuff. Don't worry. Uh, and they would use pain as a vital sign. That wasn't too long ago, 10 years ago. And they would say, well, we look at heart rate, respiration rate, body temperature, 
and pain. There was something else, heart rate. And on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? And if you say five or six or seven or eight or nine, don't give you drugs for that. And wasn't a lot of sensitivity or follow-up that a lot of people were becoming addicted to that. Now, the medical industry is aware of that now, and they do not push that the way they used to. But at that time, that's the way they managed pain. So a little scary for me, but I just I went off of it. So I'm not doing this anymore, and I'm glad I didn't. In day-to-day in day -day operations, um, like what was your duty in the military? I know we talked about when you were um, in office, what your duty, duties were and what your day-to-day -day was. But what about the military? Like give us kind of, of a rundown. Sure. What so as a, uh, as a reservist, you, you do two days a month and then two extra weeks a year. But many times the reservists would go to a base and you do a number of things where whether you're being tested for uh, fitness or taking some classes, things like that. Mine was different because I was actually boots on the ground at Walter Reed Bethesda. And so I actually worked on a unit. It was a six-bed inpatient unit for people with traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress, only one of its kind in the Department of Defense. Superb people there were Dr. Dave Williamson, superb physicians and other people who were helping heal people with major and moderate levels of brain injuries. So my role was uh, provide some counseling help, talk to family members, to help with the assessment of those. Um, many of them would be there for several weeks at a time. So I'd come back the next month and see them more and work with them. Um, and then my other times, um, during my two-week uh, training times, active times during the year, I'd usually go on an aircraft carrier or go out with the Navy SEAL teams, observe. I, I, I can't do what they do, but to observe because I needed to also get some sense of um, the incredible training and work they go through. Um, so, But being an aircraft carrier was fascinating too. The medical teams there, you know, there are many uh, cities, you know, five, 6,000 people on those. And so they're uh, sick bay which might have 30 beds in it and a few surgical areas and dental offices and physical therapy and x-ray. Um, there are a lot of hospitals. And when you have 6,000 people on a ship, uh, like any other place, you're gonna have people who have problems with anxiety and depression and sleep and mood. Um, and uh, the military didn't used to have psychologists on board. Now, aircraft carriers have them and some smaller ships have them as well. And of course, on bases they have them, in particular because the increase uh, in recognizable suicide rates and other problems there. In what countries? You said you served in Iraq, and then where else? There were. Few well, I, I had. Uh, well, I didn't serve officially in in uh, in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan. I visited there a number of times okay. in civilian realms. Um, but my my military time was either in uh, Walter Reed Bethesda or Coronado or Little Creek or Dam Neck or on ships at sea. And I, I want to ask you: Do you think the Iraq War and the Afghan War was necessary? Do you think? Everybody has their own opinion. Everybody get, you know, especially in our party, people kind of are split on that sort of, it seems like it today, you know, at this point, people are split on that. Well, you know, it's, um, a lot of those decisions were, as we say, above my pay grade. And I don't know all the intelligence information someone had. And over time, we, we get released more. Um, I'm very concerned about how we left Afghanistan and how we left Iraq. Yeah. Uh, when I had been to Iraq and I would talk with, with people there, they'd say, let us run our own country. Please don't take it over. And at that time in Iraq, Ambassador Bremer was running things in Iraq and said, we're going to do it our way. But you can't impose an American culture on, on the culture of Iraq. It just wasn't going to work. And we found that the hard way. What we need to do is promote from the very beginning for them to run their services, their vital services, and, and help them. We finally got around to that point. Um, I mean, I'm glad that we found bin Laden. I'm glad we found other terrorists who are threatening our country, but we also inspired other people to become terrorists too. So uh, uh, 
I think we needed to respond strongly after 9-11. Did we do everything perfectly? No, uh, but we did everything strong. And we certainly told the world we weren't going to sit back if people attacked us. Now, after the evacuation of Afghanistan, I don't think we have that current status. And from my standpoint, because I'm not in a political decision-making position anymore, I look more how that has affected our veterans who say, wow, we did all that fighting and all that killing and being killed and wounded, and now they just drop it and leave all the weapons behind in an unstable country. That's what hurts people a lot. We didn't do that in Germany after World War II. We didn't do that in Japan after World War II. Um, uh, but if we don't help a, company, a country stabilize and do well, something's going to occur again. That's why I worry about. No, I hear you. I hear you. And, you know, with with how I want to talk, I want to kind of shift topics and I got to let you go here in a few minutes. I, I love talking to you, though. I could talk to you all day. Um, I, I got to mention, you know, with with the scamdemic uh, pandemic, whatever, whatever you want to call it, that ha happened in the last couple of years, I, I'm noticing a lot of people extremely scared and in fear and not acting like themselves. Do you think there are a lot, a significant amount that are scarred for life because of this, because of these lockdowns, because of being taken out of their routine, because of never experiencing something like this in their lifetime. And we're already hearing about more lockdowns for maybe climate, climate change and all this other shit. So who knows what to believe? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that was a, now we realize it was a serious overreach in the role of government. Even such things as telling people don't go outside. We now know that going outside and walk, taking a walk in the park in the sunshine was the best and, uh, um, disinfectant of all. Uh, and telling people they couldn't gather for church. Uh, look, if we're concerned about being too close and spreading the virus, still we could have done a lot of adaptations, even saying, well, we don't want you all your cars in the parking lot near each other. Um, people need to have that those kind of gatherings. And, I, and what has happened is it's been a breakdown of, of these very important institutions and not really, uh, and the people stayed away. People are starting to go back to church. They're starting to get back to some institutions. But you still see a lot of people with masks on uh, as they drive their car or um, still get concerned that other people aren't wearing their masks. Look, if someone is at risk of an infection and wants to wear a mask, Fine. I mean, you go to countries like Japan, and a lot of people have that out of, um, out of a, a appreciation, concern if they're feeling ill, not to spread it. But it's become a political symbol, a political flag there. Uh, I, I, I worry that we're going to get into, I don't want us to ever get into a situation again where we're going to tell people lockdown, stay home, because we saw the harm it did. Human beings are social. They want to interact. They want to be around other people. And um, I don't want to see us do this again. Um, and what do you think about all the corruption with Big Pharma and the vaccines? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'll, I'll, I'm going to hold off opinions on there, too, because my, my job is now in healing people. And I, I want to make sure that that's where I stay focused. And talk about your practice. Kind of talk about how you help sure. people, kind of your rituals, you know, kind of the, the curriculum you use. Is it a lot of cognitive behavior? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the cognitive behavioral therapy is you help people change how they feel by changing how they think. And you listen to the stories they tell and you help them point out what's not rational. What are the beliefs that are not helpful for them? Like people believe, if only I had done this, the world would have been different. Or life should be fair or nobody should do this to me. The fact is life is not fair and problems are going to occur. Um, uh, as I said, I focus on veterans, first responders, and medical frontline people. 
uh, and help them work through that. I'm all, I also partner with former Pittsburgh Steeler John Kolb. Now, you may oh, not wow. know that. He was a lineman. He protected Terry Bradshaw's blind side in the, um, uh, in the Super Bowl years of the 70s. He's got four Super Bowl rings. Um, were you ever a fan of the Oakland Raiders back when they were in Oakland? Uh, I, you know, I was never really a Raider fan, but I, okay, well, I, I would know probably some of the players in the last 10 to 20 Well, you would, you would know, you would know the immaculate reception. Okay. Franco Harris caught that ball after it bounced off another player. It was an Oakland okay. player, a Pittsburgh player, I don't know. But uh, John Cobb tells the story that um, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him because the player, the defensive player from Oakland, would always go to one side, and John was always ready to block him. On this particular play, for the first time he went to the other side, Went after Terry Bradshaw. Bradshaw moved out of the pocket, and there was another second and a half delay. And he said, "He said Franco Harris was a great athlete, but he wasn't that fast to be where he needed to be. He needed that extra second and a half." And John says, "Because I missed that, uh, uh, Franco Harris catch the ball." The interesting story about that is he says, "You know, sometimes when you make a mistake, when something doesn't go your way, it could out, it could turn out to be well." Now, the reason I say I work with him is he runs this intensive exercise physiology program. Because to get well doesn't just mean you sit and talk about it. We know as the body's in better shape, the brain is in better shape. So by teaching people a lot of balance and coordination and cardiovascular work and getting outside into the woods and rock climbing and adventures, that's all part of it. And that's extremely helpful to people. So when I talk to people about the formula to get better, talk therapy, yes, but you got to work on your physical shape. You got to work on your diet. You got to work on your sleep. You have to keep your mind sharp. You have to work on relaxation. All those things. Now, actually, that's the principle I spell out in my book. It's fitness, attitude, sleep, training, eating, and relaxation. It spells a little bit faster because you want to get better faster, do the right thing. So part of my book is very biblical in that sense. Part is very um, very research and secular and those things, too. So that's that's my approach um, in working with people. And I got I to gotta ask you this. Um, we talked about PTSD earlier. And... You know, it's there's been a lot of studies that marijuana has helped PTSD, especially veterans, and um, it's also helped can cancer patients. A lot of different scenarios. It's helped people going through different behavioral issues. I want to know: Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I don't recommend it, but I also recognize for some people it has helped them calm down to get forward. I'm not a fan of legalization of that. We know that. Um, marijuana use that begins in adolescence actually can lead to harm to the brain, the developing brain, higher incidence of other serious mental illness problems with that. And I think when we legalize something and say, oh, anybody can have it for recreational use, then everybody thinks, oh, it's okay. No, it actually has some harms associated with it. And uh, some of my, my clients have used marijuana at times to help them sleep at night. I don't pass judgment on that. But I'll say using it every day means your mind is in a fog. Your motivation plummets. You don't want to work on things or change things, and, and you end up with further problems. So I worry about that. Um, people who I see who say, I just can't get started in life. I don't want to do anything. Well, how much marijuana do you smoke? Well, I smoke every day. Well, can you stop doing that? Gee, I don't know. I says, well, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So I'm concerned about that. It isn't just a harmless drug there. You have to look at the whole context of everything else. But I recognize for some people who are overwhelmed, with fear and anxiety, it can help them temporarily, but it's it's a it's a bridge, but not a destination. And do you do you recommend like to your patients that they take vitamins before they go and seek you know prescription medication like antidepressants and ADHD meds? Don't you think those things are way over prescribed in in today's society? 
I think I think we're overprescribed with anti-anxiety and antidepressant drugs. And, and one of the things about antidepressant drugs, when someone takes one, um, about a third of the people that it's effective with, and then they try a second drug, and maybe it's effective about 25%. And then by the time you get to the fourth antidepressant drug, about 6%. Antidepressant drugs can be extremely helpful for people with severe depression. But actually, for people with moderate and mild, a vigorous exercise, a healthy diet, and healthy sleep can make a huge difference. So when someone has concentration and attention problems, let's say it's a child, people say, oh, maybe this child has ADHD, let's get a medication. It could be the child is upset about things. It could be the child is struggling with some other physical problem. They're not getting enough sleep. Uh, they're teased at school. And attention and concentration is one of the things that comes out. Let's not give them all Ritalin right away or some other uh, drug there. Let's find out what it what truly is and get to the core of that. Um, but other things, I think as a nation, we're very quick to say, let's just take a pill for that. Pills can be very helpful, the right medication, monitor carefully, but there's other treatments that need to be part of that for people to get better. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And and last thing, and, and then I, I'm going to let you go, and I got to get you back here soon. I love talking to you. Uh, we were talking about Ron DeSantis earlier, and you said you used to know Ron DeSantis on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so um, here's a little story about him. One time we were working out in the morning, and uh, Paul Ryan, he was a speaker, and the Capitol Police, his security detail came over, took him aside. And I remember Paul saying, wow, this has never happened. And then he comes back and said, there was a shooting at some baseball field. What was that? And we're thinking, wow, what was that? Well, that was the Republicans' practice of the baseball field. Scalise, right? Yes, Scalise, Scalise. So we go back, we're changing clothes, and Ron DeSantis comes in. And Ron's in baseball clothes. and says, hey, Ron, were you just playing baseball? Yeah, we just had a practice. Why? And we told him that there was a shooting there and somebody was wounded, but we didn't know yet who. He said, wow, I was just there. And then he said, and this is chilling, he said, some guy asked me, is this the Republican baseball practice? And I said, yes. I wonder if he was the one that was the shooter. Imagine Ron's feeling at that. Now this guy had been scoping and watching for days. He knew what he was doing. But I remember seeing uh, Ron obviously shook up from that, as, as we all were, that he had left there a few minutes before and literally dodged the bullet by by leaving there. in all your years in politics was that the craziest moment of your life well that was a that was a very intense one we had other times too that um, you you weren't correct me if i'm wrong you were at the gym you were not there at the baseball game no we were not at the baseball game no okay. um but afterwards when you when we saw the members come back you could see how distressed they were from them i mean that's incredibly scary that's a trauma traumatic event Right. And that's one that I'm sure the people there will carry with them. Steve Scalise is a pretty amazing guy. How you know, despite all this bullets shattering his his body, and so many were were there's probably some still in him too. That um, his recovery and his smile and his struggles, um, he's fought back hard, and I think he deserves a lot of respect for that. Right, and you were saying something else when when I asked you if that's the craziest moment in your time in politics. Well, there there was there was a lot of times. I'll, I'll leave you with a funny story. So um, there was a member of Congress from North Carolina, may he rest in peace, Howard Coble. Howard Coble was an older guy, 70, 80, 90, I don't know what he was, but he was a wonderful guy, single guy. The women all loved him because he was just a charming fella too. Nice. But he wasn't exactly the most handsome fella. And he talked like this, this Southern accent. So there was um, a time when they're working on this bill to say that farmers couldn't sell their horses to, for meat, they had to bury them. A lot of farmers said, I don't have the money to bury all my horses when they're getting older. Why can't I sell them for meat, just like cattle? Well, coming into 
opposed the idea of selling them for meat was none other than Bo Derek, the beautiful actress who was in the movie Ten. So anyways, I was going to this meeting about the bill, uh, breakfast gathering. Um, she was going to be there. But my constituents, a lot of them raised horses, and they said, please oppose this bill. We want to be able to sell our horses for that. So walk in this room. There's Bo Derek. This other guy came in really disheveled. It was, um, oh, who was the actor? But it doesn't matter. So Bo's in there. Coming in late in the room was Howard Coble. And he comes in and he says, uh, how are you? And, and she says, I'm Bo Derek. And, oh, I know Miss Derek. Nice to see you. She gives him a big hug. And, and Howard gives a big hug back. And, and then uh, she says, will you co-sponsor this bill? Will you support it? He goes, yes, absolutely I will. Absolutely I will. And Howard sits down next to me. He leans over and whispers in my ear, what did I just agree to? <laughs> I don't know, but Bo Derek asked you. So there you go. Um, that's, that's funny. Yeah, nice that stories like that. Yeah, no, I, I, I also have to ask you, um, just your interactions with everybody on Capitol Hill, would you guys all go and, you know, have drinks after and celebrate with each other? I mean, was it th yeah. that sort of friendship or was it always a business relationship? It wasn't always a business relationship, but there were, you, know, you maybe had a couple friends. Tip O'Neill famously said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. There were some places where you could go and see some people, but some people had very close relationships, some didn't. I mean, there was a member like Tom Cole of Oklahoma, uh, remains a dear friend to this day. But if you can serve in Washington and come out with, with at least one friend, uh, I think you've broken the mold. It's hard to do that because everybody has their work to do. They're caught up with their families and traveling the country. But there is a certain nod that people have towards each other that says, oh, you serve too, you know what it's like. But that goes for any field. People are professional athletes or whatever they are when you do something together, uh, even though you may fight tooth and nail, there's some camaraderie. But there was some of that. You know, people did get together. They did some things. They talked. And I wish we had more of that because I think that would have helped it, sort of pushing people to do some bipartisan things together. But um, I think with the advent of a lot of the um, uh, cable news where people know they could get on if they said something outrageous or they tweeted something out or posted something, that's sad because those folks get the attention and we mistakenly assume because I'm angry, I must be right. Because I got publicity, my issue must be important. Um, we need to get away from that and get back to the basic run of the country. How much, how much self-indulgence and corruption did you witness on Capitol Hill? I didn't really witness corruption. I, that seems to be out there and people talk about it all the time. Were there some people who did some things that they got caught for and reprimanded? Yeah. Um, I, the self-indulgence, I don't know. I think that uh, like any other place, you're going to have people when you have 500 some people together and thousands of staff, you're going to have like any place in the world, you're going to have people who end up making mistakes um, and some get caught and some don't. Uh, but I don't think it's a, it's a den of thieves like it sounds good and people, I've, I've seen a lot of memes and things on, uh, in, um, that go out on the internet that talk about all the things there and some of them are just false, but it sounds good. One of the great narratives is members of Congress um, don't pay into Social Security, but get it. They get their salary the rest of their life. They get health care the rest of their life. None of those are true. Um, but, you know, it sounds interesting and people like to glam onto that. And uh, I just say they're folks like anywhere else. And there's a, most people don't serve more than eight years because they can't take it anymore or they've done some work and they go home. And do you still have contact or stay in touch with uh, a lot of the people or a few of the people? There's, there's a few, but things have changed so much year to year. And I think from the time I was there now, maybe only half the members are still there. 
um, and I left there about six years ago. Uh, things change a lot, as it should. You know, new people come in with with fresh ideas from some other approaches. Uh, it's nice to have some people there with some continuity and knowledge of history, so they are aware of how things really work. Um, yeah, I, I, when it comes to it, I, I would say I don't miss the circus, but I do miss some of the clowns. <laughs> I mean, would would you just see things that were just so appalling in terms of bills that they were trying to pass and some of the legislation you would read? Would you just roll your eyes? Yeah, I mean, sometimes bills were done for symbolism, knowing that it wasn't going to go anywhere. I can't think of anything offhand, but I think, well, why are we doing this bill? Well, someone wanted it, someone needed it, but it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, even the health care legislation, both health care bills I didn't want to vote for. Um, the bill that was the original Democrat Obamacare bill, I saw that it was paying for health care, very expensive, but it wasn't fixing health care. And then under the Trump administration pushing that health care bill, I said, this doesn't fix it either. It just takes away the funding so people can have tax cuts. Um, and I was really frustrated in both cases because I wanted us to have some reforms that would really make health care uh, uh, transparent, uh, improve doctor-patient relationships, make it competitive, uh, work towards uh, an improvement of the system. And we didn't get there. That was very frustrating for me. I hear you. I hear you. Tim Murphy, you've lived a hell of a life. I love having you on. Tell everybody where they can get involved, where they can contact you. We'll definitely get you back here soon, man. I could talk, you. To, you, I could talk to you all day. Well, I, I would ask people, please help uh, with this book. I use some proceeds from that to help fund my programs for veterans and first responders. You can find me at drtimmurphy.com. That's D-R-T-I-M-M-U-R-P-H-Y.com. Through there, there's a link to contact me. You can also purchase the books there or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Christian Book, whatever it is. Um, I do ask you to purchase that. By the way, there's some scam artists out there who are also saying they have the workbook that goes with it. Totally false. Don't buy it. Just the book. I'll have my own workbook someday too. But that happens with anything. You know, someone tries to glom on and take credit for it. But, but please, I ask your support. I also have podcasts that go up there. Not as sophisticated. You got the fancy ones. You got video. I'm audio. Um, and some, uh, so some podcasts there and also some uh, blogs I write to. I'm on LinkedIn. But stay in touch with me. I want to hear from people. I like to hear from veterans, first responders, and anybody who's struggling in life. And I want you to know there's lots of hope. There's help and there's hope. You can get through it. But please um, uh, grab my book. If not for you, then for a friend that you know is struggling. The Christ Cure is what it's called, 10 Biblical Ways to Heal from Trauma, Tragedy, and PTSD. Amen, my friend. Amen. Well, we will talk to you very soon. Uh, Thank you. God bless you, and uh, cheers. Uh, we'll Thank be right you, back, everybody, coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sauter and the News. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence and this family owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever gonna have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA.
It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented fill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, my pillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that my pillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology, and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed, and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side. Well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time, when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. Mr. Renfield, welcome. I am Dracula. You will make a very good assistant. No! He's evil. We will protect you. You have the word of the most trusted institution on Earth, the Catholic Church. Ah! Renfield. Your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. 
I don't think he's such a bad guy, but you're never really going to be free until you face him. I will no longer tolerate abuse. <laughs> I deserve happiness. Let me explain something to you, okay? You deserve only suffering. I will unleash an army of death. Everyone you care about will suffer because you betrayed me. We have to stop him before sunset. And someone's like, it's okay, I've seen way worse. Everything I saw you do today is gonna be my way worse. It's my least favorite part of the job. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Schotter and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest is lawyer Dan Mornoff. Dan, we tried to do this yesterday. The broadcast <laughs> got cut out. I totally lost power. I lost connection. That's why I'm doing a show today. But it's, it's, it's an honor to have you here. Tell everybody about yourself. Give a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun stuff, man. Sure, my pleasure, and thank you for having me back. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, hopefully, we actually get out to the audience this time. Um, right, so um, bio. Um, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs, uh, went to college in New York, law school in Chicago. In between, I worked for Senator Phil Graham in D.C., um, 
And uh, then I followed him home to Texas. So, you know, I was a big firm lawyer for a while. And then I launched my own public interest law firm, which over time has become the American Civil Rights Project, the organization that I now run. I love it. I love it. Now, talk about working for Phil Brand back in the day. What was that like? Um, I <laughs> forgive that. That's my kids getting home from school. I got no worries. Um, yeah. Uh, Phil Graham, uh, Phil. Phil Gr Senator Graham, he's uh, he was a he is he's still alive. I'm I'm very grateful for that. He he was a great man. Um, you know, uh, most of the things accomplished in the Reagan administration ha that had to go through Congress, he wrote um, to a very real degree. All of the successes of the 1980s were possible because of Phil Graham's work. Um, he I feel very blessed to have actually when I kind of randomly wound up working for someone in DC, um, that it was him. I mean, to be honest, there are not very many politicians uh, that after you know better, you respect more. Um, he's someone that I, I, to this day, I would do anything the man asked me to because I know perfectly well he would never ask me to do anything that I wouldn't want to do myself if I understood why he was asking. And you, and it sounds like you credit him for getting your career started. I mean, it's basically where um, it all. Uh, you know, it was it was my first real job in politics or, or in policy. So you know, I'd yeah. done some stuff before that. I worked for um, a generational advocacy group, as I think what they called themselves on like uh, social on, on entitlement reform policy when yeah. I was in college, but. Uh, and I, you know, when I was in, and when I was in college, I ran like my school's uh, conservative newspaper, which I'm pretty sure was the only one in Manhattan at the time. So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what was that like? I mean, I can only imagine, <laughs> I mean, being the small minority in Manhattan, having the only conservative newspaper yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there was a Jewish guy going to Columbia who got called a Nazi. I mean, like, there's, you know, you haven't lived until, right? But uh, it's, uh, um, yeah, I'm glad I did it. Um, as it turns out, I later found out, you know, we had a recruiting shtick for my newspaper when I yeah. ran it that, like, I was there for its 10th anniversary. Yeah. I ran it at its 10th anniversary. And, like, um, I remember one of the things we always explained, you know, we were called the Federalist Paper, um, a... What was the subhead? It was uh, the Federalist Paper, uh, a classically liberal uh, newspaper in the tradition of Columbians, Hamilton, and Jay. It was something like that, right? And um, our, our recruiting shtick was that we'd mentioned that 10 years earlier, three guys who wrote for the Daily Paper at the school uh, had gotten fed up with it always being such a party line, unthinking entity. So they left and started their own thing. And, you know, in, in our storied version, you know, one of them was a conservative, one was a libertarian, and one was a socialist that they let write movie reviews. And um, the, <laughs> a restaurant review, something like that. Uh, only much later, like five years ago, did I find out that um, one of those three was actually Neil Gorsuch. Um, and that whoa, whoa, uh, the, whoa, whoa, go back a little bit. Yeah, he go was the, he was one of the three founders. The chief, the justice of the Supreme Court was one of the three people. I'm pretty sure he was the conservative in that setup. But uh, wow. Yeah. And when like when I ran it, I had a column for three years called "Fed Up" because well. So um, Neil Gorsuch was in your group. 
And you you didn't yeah. even know till recently. No, of course not. I, and oh, he'd been there ten years earlier. Like he was he. He, he was working, I mean, he was elsewhere, right? Like he was a lawyer by that point. But uh, yeah. yeah, he was one of our alumni. He was the founder of the newspaper. When he ran the opinion page, which I later ran for like a year or two, um, his column was also named Fed Up. We had the same title. Um, and that would be the only time we will ever have the same title. But nonetheless, yeah, that, uh, that those were the shoes I guess I was walking. How do you think he's doing, by the way, as uh, what, what do you think? I think he's a fascinating uh, justice um, yeah. and uh, usually worth considering and interesting. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and I got I to gotta ask you, I want to go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Your days spent on Capitol Hill when you worked, <laughs> when you worked over there. Uh, tell us about that. I mean, obviously, times have changed. Things yeah. are much different now. Was it much more cordial back then? A lot more things got done. It wasn't as hostile, right? Um, I was there. I was a staffer during the uh, Clinton administration. Okay. Um, so um, and still, clear, Palmer, I was a Palmer. very low level staffer for most of that time. Like my yeah. first job, I was my job was literally like something out of a out of like a, a movie from the 1940s, like opening and sorting mail and fetching ice for the office. So like. Wow. Um, not necessarily the kind of position where collegiality w across the aisle was ever going to come up. Uh, right. But, you know, I, and they did, you know, I did get promoted one and a half times and um, got to work on one project with the man. So. And then, um, and then the, the politician you worked for, mm -hmm. you, were, you were like, you were, when you shadowed him, you would follow him around and you'd, you would see everything that would go on on Capitol Hill, right? Um, I, oh. one would not, should not assume that low level staffers wind up. I mean, sometimes I'd like, I'd be able to like, yeah, but I mean, for the most part, um, for the most part, no, I was not interacting with, with the Senator daily is how I should probably honestly answer that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so how many people were in his office? That, oh, that had, what was you? like, uh, 30 40 maybe 50 it was like 30 or 40 people something like that okay. and, th and that may be wrong too it's been a long time and, uh, and he and then so after this so you so you go from there and then you go back to texas and uh, then i went to law school no you went to you, know, you went to law school and yeah. tell us about that how was how was that um it was it i it was great were you the only conservative in in your law no, I um I chose to go to the University of Chicago Law School because at the time it was America's great conservative law school, and uh, it to this day I continue to um, fall back on relationships that I made there, and you know uh, I'm surprised University of Chicago was there. pretty conservative in terms of law school. Yes, yes, it was. Wow. Chicago's Chicago was known for decades as the conservative law school and well uh, of the right law school. Um, honestly, most is of the still? folks in the faculty were. I can't imagine that it's still. Is it? Um, at this point, the law school has just. I, I, I don't want to disparage it. Uh, there are yeah, some good conservatives alum, there. Alumni, so you don't want to. There yeah. are some good. No, there are. There are some good conservatives that are still in the faculty. Uh, there's there's still some wonderful conservative organizations among the law students, and um, the school the school as a whole seems to have largely decided it would um, it, that it would like to become. And you know, okay, the, there are some recent events that make this an inapt parallel because it very much the entire University of Chicago is still very wed to the idea of academic 
freedom and freedom of speech in ways that very few schools are. But it's largely, you know, set aside recent news, um, it's largely decided it wants to be Stanford with bad weather. So, you know, uh, less notable for preserving its intellectual heritage. You know what freaks me out is a lot of these law schools are basing their curriculum off of po politics and political ideology rather than the law itself. I mean, I'm sure that worries you, right? Um, I don't know that the that I mean, there are certainly some schools that that's probably applicable to uh, I, I, the pattern that I'm more concerned with is the infiltration of. Um, DEI and the like shut down culture into America's law schools. Um, when a federal judge from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals gets shouted down by a room of students at Stanford, recent event I was talking about, um, that, that should never happen. To be honest, none, no one who participated in those events should ever pass any bar exam. Um, the bar bars do in fact screen for ethical ethical fitness for the profession no one who thinks that treating a federal judge in that manner should ever be able to pass that that review now, now let me ask you you have a lot of current projects you're working on that you want to share with the audience there's uh, a few things that you have just dealt with that you were a part of talk about that a little bit we talked about it yesterday, and I know the broadcast got cut off. Sure, no, 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 no problem. Um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of things that we at the American Civil Rights Project are working on. Um, one of the things that we've been doing that's probably most prominent is our work in confronting the spread across um, America's corporate world of policies embracing faddish discrimination. Um, and, and there's a lot of that. I have a theory on why, but uh, there. Uh, but the short version is there are a lot of C-suites and boards of directors across America who are deciding to do things um, that are affirmatively bad for their corporations, um, but by the officers and directors' social credit with other people's money. Yeah, and we were talking yesterday, you and I, and you've you've studied a lot about this, and you've even done some work on it is the the reparation situation in California. Right. Sure. How, the, the madness behind this, how crazy. Uh, but tell the audience, because you're very informative on this topic. Oh, sure. My pleasure. And, and I'm um, in California. so <laughs> Right. You're an actual Californian. I, live in California. I am. Yep. Set, yeah. um, okay. So in 2020, the California legislature passed a bill to constitute a new entity that would be called, well, I forget what it's called. It was the state's... Um, reparations task force and the legislature assigned this reparations task force the job of calculating uh, this is the quote uh, compensation to African Americans with a special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States so 2020 they pass a bill they task it to calculate this thing and they gave the task force a deadline to report back to the legislature with this calculation uh, by June 30th, 2023. So, you know, it's been three years. We're getting pretty close to that. And now they are, in fact, finalizing their report. Um, that report, to be clear, is a very long document. It, they took the last votes, I believe, about two weeks ago. Um, 
in its current form. This is a book length thing. It is 40 chapters long. Um, it is an overwrought, hyperbolically written document, um, which includes something like seven chapters dedicated to chronicling um, the racial atrocities committed by California against African-Americans, black people over the 20th century. Um, look, if you step back and you look at the long sweep of American history, and especially the long history of you know black Americans, um, I think they're genuinely things that deserve the title of racial atrocities. Slavery, the slave trade, um, the bourbon restoration uh, in which uh, in which racial supremacist terrorists overthrew the elected reconstruction governments uh, at, in the 1870s. Um, arguably whole chapters out of Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, there really are things you could describe this way pretty accurately. Um, and, you know, you could throw in more, you know, the, the pogrom in Tulsa, um, in any case. They do include some of those. And then they include other things like eminent domain abuse or uh, ongoing health disparities. Now, I, you might you might have views on those subjects. I know I'm I'm. I'm a critic of eminent domain abuse. I've filed briefs at the Supreme Court of Texas decrying eminent domain abuse. Right. I find it very hard to describe eminent domain abuse, especially what they've written about specifically is the fact that when governments exercise eminent domain and take away people's property, they very rarely get the full value of that property. That's a real problem. I find it very hard to describe that problem as a racial atrocity. Um, it just is, it's a categorical error to put that in the same category as the slave trade. Um, similarly, you, you can look at, there really are health disparities between different groups across America. You know, there really are groups that have much higher rates of say, um, infection with diabetes. I'm not even sure that infection is the right word because it's a, it's a condition you, you acquire. It's not, it's not like a, a germ, right? But like, uh, there are there really are differences in how common um, suffering from diabetes is. But I again, you know, that's a result of choices made throughout someone's life over time: diet, exercise, other other similar things. Sure, there are in fact genetic predispositions that also kick in. What there is not there is a racial atrocity that explains that difference. Like if that's, that's again, it's just this categorical error. Why is that here? But it is here. In any case, after these many chapters of uh, discussions of, you know, the racial atrocities of California's past, we then hit what the actual proposals are that are in this book length report. They'll formally be submitting to the legislature next month. And, um, and there are a lot of them. Uh, the one that's gotten the most attention by far is this proposal uh, for cash reparations. And um, I, I, I want to spend a little time on that one, but I also want to just flag right, at, right now that there are, there are a bunch of other things and that they're maybe even more interesting and stranger to have been included in the bundle created by the reparations task force since i mean to my ears reparations task force and especially when their assignment was calculate compensation to african americans i think the only thing they were asking for was that top line item regardless that's not what they did that's not what the book is so so okay there are two components in their proposed set of cash reparations one of them 
which they want to be uh, worked out later uh, and to be administered through uh, like truth and reconciliation commission, like something out of uh, the post-apartheid South Africa would document all of the particularized harms suffered by individuals as a result of particular policies California had over the last century. Um, to be honest, I look at that and I think that that might, one, that couldn't be entirely legal. There's nothing wrong with a government trying to make right the things that it did to specific people. Um, so that might be legal. It might even, in fact, be appropriate. It might be a good idea. Uh, and to the extent there was something legitimate in the, the task, in the legislature creating the task force at all, it's pretty clearly what they were talking about. On the other hand, they didn't actually suggest how to create that or how to calculate that or what the dollar amounts might be. That's not what this did. Instead, there's this second bundle that they've also included in the report where they're proposing that in addition to that, the particularized payments to rectify harm done by California and its subdivisions. This is the other thing, which will be categorical payments made by California based on how many years someone who is black lived in California or their forefathers lived in California, whether or not they ever suffered any harm whatsoever. Um, and, and that one, um, and, the, and that's where they start working out calculations which, you know, they've included experts. They've, they've based this on a, a, they've done a lot of work and on some level that's genuinely admirable to try to calculate, you know, how much harm has been done as a result of health disparities over a century or how much harm has been done by eminent domain abuse over a century. Uh, and then regardless of whether any of that actually applies to any particular person, these are the payments that we recommend making. Now, they describe that set of payments as a down payment to be made by the state towards reparations. And the estimates I've seen have calculated that that down payment would total about $800 billion. So, um, you know, California is already, California's budget um, is cyclical. And, uh, you know, two years ago, they were, they were awash in revenues, which they decided to spend all of. And now the state has, what, a $1.6 trillion deficit, something like that. So the proposal is to, to add 50% more to that deficit, which, I mean, I think the state has a, a balanced budget requirement so that I, I can't fathom how that's even possible. But, but set, set those practical concerns aside. Um, just as a well, you know what, I'll get to the legality of all this later. But th that's that's the thing that's gotten any attention. It is not, again, the only thing they're actually proposing. Not even the cash payments are the only thing they're proposing. They've also proposed a slew of additional things. He here's a subset of them, and it, it is not comprehensive. Um, they've proposed that higher education across all of California's public colleges and universities should be free for all African Americans. Um by the way, that's that's a straight up violation of the state constitution. Forget federal law. Um, it's um, the state of California passed by ballot initiative, uh, ballot initiative 209 in 1996, a specific um, amendment to the state constitution to forbid race discrimination in admissions to um, in admissions. I'll just leave it at that. Also in contracting. Um, that passed in 1996. The legislature hates it, by the way. They tried to repeal it a few years ago. It was on the ballot in 2020 when the state broke 
for uh, Joe Biden over Donald Trump by what, 70 to 30? But but it was on the same ballot and it didn't lose 70, 30. It didn't lose at all. In fact, um, the repeal, the, the no side of the repeal proposal won. And it won with that same electorate by a larger majority than it was passed by in 1996. The state is more diverse than it was then. Um, it, and yet with every institution in the state of California aligned on one side and basically a bunch of um, a bunch of uh, Asian immigrants and their children on the other, um, no one. And it won handily. And it won in almost every demographic group. It won, uh, UCLA has a study on this. It won among the white electorate. It won among the Hispanic electorate. It won among the Asian electorate. Um, it was a lot closer than one might have expected even in the black electorate. Um, but that's, but their proposal that they, one of the proposals they have included as reparations is amend the state constitution, get rid of 209. Uh, okay. I mean, if they want a third bite at that apple, I, I suppose they can have it. I, I don't think that there's been a mass change of public opinion on this subject since November of 2020 that would make that worthwhile, but you know, people are free to do what they want. Um, some of the other proposals, uh, to create for the state, a universal single-payer healthcare system dedicated to achieving health equity. Let me just make sure everyone understands what health equity means. Health equity means we're going to allocate treatment based on race. That literally is a policy from apartheid South Africa. It's going to look like a DMV or Southwest Airlines, man. Cattle call, man. Not going to be a good thing. No, of course not. Um, it's insane. But oh, and by the way. I, I don't know of anyone who prefers their, well, I shouldn't say that. You can find countries where people like their single-payer healthcare systems. Um, you got to look, but you can find them. But um, but that's a debate we've been having in America for 20 years. And it, it, to say the least, is not a majority position, that everyone should lose their health insurance. Everyone should lose their ability to hire a particular doctor. Everyone should have to go to the DMV to have them decide what healthcare treatment you get or don't, much less to have the DMV decide it based on your race and ethnicity. Um, but that's one of them. And, and there are others, like let's create one of their proposals. Let's create a state level agency to run a race-based parallel banking system. It'll also run a race-based um, grant program. It'll also run a race-based licensure regime entirely state from entirely separate from that the state runs for everyone else. Um, all of these things are in there. And then there are ones that 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 are I'm going to put in a, in a, in a third category. These because people those, are fucking crazy, man. They're all of those mind. I can look at in it. I can at least understand racist why they're on the racial shopping list. <laughs> they're so the, racist. These people are so racist. The, then you have the additional set, which is things like, let's make election day a holiday at the state level. Or let's, really in it, prevent highway expansion or increase climate resilience. These have nothing to do whatsoever with the assignment they were given. It has, it's literally just, I mean, look, I've, we've all worked on committee projects and like, I understand that at some point people just start throwing in stuff and you don't want to argue anymore. So you just, okay, fine. We'll put that into, but like there is, there's a comedic level to the fact. And again, it's not about the proposal itself. There are, people of goodwill who think it is a great idea to make election day a national holiday. 
who think that it would be dramatically better to have everyone cast their vote on the same day. And by the way, let's get rid of early voting and let's get rid of the mass use of mail-in voting, which everyone since Jimmy Carter co-chaired a committee with James Baker has known as more susceptible to fraud. There are people, there are lots of people who've kicked this around. I'm not objecting to the idea, but what on earth does it have to do with the assignment of calculating compensation to African-Americans with a special consideration for African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States? It's just nuts. And there it is. So um, this is the proposal. I'm, I'm going to mention one other thing they've thrown in here because I think it's the it's important. It's the tell for what's actually going on here. And that's that um, they've also included in the, the set of proposals in this document that this book, when it's printed, um, additional copies should be should be run and sent to every member of Congress, to the president and to other you know, high ranking officials in the administration. And um, I think that's remarkable because it, it tells us what this is and what this isn't. If this was a serious legislative proposal for the state of California, it would be very important to get it to the state legislature. But if it was actually a proposal for the state legislature of California, there is absolutely no reason Speaker McCarthy needs a copy. But it's not actually a serious legislative proposal. And by the way, you don't need to take my word on this. Like, what, like a week ago when they first put this out. Um, Governor Newsom, Governor Newsom, um, I think we did talk about this yesterday. What's the definition of a gaffe? It's when you say what you mean. Um, when when he when he was asked about this, and he said, well, I mean, you, you know that we're not actually going to give anyone any money, right? And then like he tried to backtrack and say, oh, I didn't mean that. Well, we'll have to look very carefully at it once it's published. And it, Sure. Okay. Uh, but he meant it. That was the point. This was never intended as an actual legislative proposal. It was never intended for the legislature to actually pass this thing. Now, I am never going to bet uh, that the political class of California is smart enough not to do something. So maybe they won't get the joke. Maybe they'll pass it anyway. But like, I'll tell you, if they pass it, they're only passing it because they know full well it will immediately be enjoined in court. They would only be doing so because they know no money will ever actually be spent on any of this because it's ridiculous. And um, and that's true even in the, like uh, a couple sessions ago, the state legislature had passed, I think it was two cycles in a row, had passed bills to um, compel corporations that are chartered in California or headquartered in California to allocate their board seats based on race, ethnicity, sex, and gender. Um, it, both of those bills have been enjoined, one by um, the state courts in Los Angeles, one by the federal courts somewhere in California. Forgive me, I don't remember which federal court it was. But like, even in California, the judiciary knows this is facially unconstitutional. And I, I guess I should explain why. I'm a lawyer. That's that's probably something I should throw in here. Yeah. Um, anytime, we'll talk about the 14th Amendment, right? The 14th Amendment includes the Equal Protection Clause. Anytime a state government or a um, subdivision of a state government wants to make any decision that classifies people based on race, um, that classification in itself is constitutional harm. And in order to have any policy based on a racial classification, uh, 
go into effect. The judiciary has to agree that it satisfies strict scrutiny. So what does that mean? Strict scrutiny means two things. Um, there is a compelling state purpose at issue. And the policy at issue is narrowly tailored to meet that compelling state interest. In the entire history of the judiciary, the courts have ever found three and only three things to be compelling state purposes. National security. Okay. This is not about national security. No one with a straight face could tell you that it was. Um, there's a second set which shows up in the line of cases culminating in the, the opinion we're now waiting for from the Supreme Court uh, in the litigation about Harvard and UNC. Um, in 2003, Justice O'Connor, writing for a majority, recognized it as a compelling purpose the uh, state universities achieving the purported educational benefits of having diverse classes sufficiently to allow, you know, if you, there were certain hurdles built in here, uh, sufficiently to allow states to racially discriminate in admissions. By the way, it was that narrowly written. Um, the Grutter opinion um, did not apply even to education outside of higher ed, like the Supreme Court in Parents United, is it United? It's, it's something like that, um, out of Seattle, had ruled that this doesn't even apply in K through 12 education, much less anywhere else. And it doesn't, so it, it only applies in higher ed and only in, only in admissions. Like it doesn't apply in um, anything else universities do so that like it's still an, it is still a violation of title seven employment law for universities to hire or promote based on race by the way they do that too but nonetheless it's a, it's a, but it's not legal and the, the courts have never approved it and there's no diversity exception even in theory that would allow it so um so you got that, but we're not talking, well, we are in part when we talk about 209 or, you know, free education for all African-Americans, those, those, you know, okay, those fail here. And they're still not, a. there's, there is no serious argument that this is going to comply with that, much less with the state constitution, which it also has to clear. There's only one other, and the only other window is that um, the courts have said for a long, long time that it is in fact constitutional if a state government has a policy that discriminated based on race. Um, to fix the harms, the state's own policies worked. So long as you're narrowly tailored and there's no less discriminatory way you could do it and it's time limited. It's, it's, it's got a sunset provision so that once you've fixed it, you're done and this ends. And none of this really, none of these proposals, I mean, certainly not election day and national holiday, but none of these, none of these hit those. There is no serious argument that this proposal could ever satisfy strict scrutiny. So um, they know this is never going to go into effect. I think they're smart enough not to pass it and have to be sued and enjoined. There we'll just have to see. It's oh, so interesting. Man. <laughs> And, and it's not only California. You, you just saw all these other states try to pull this bullshit. And did you see Cori Bush come out yesterday and put, uh, what's the headline? It was like four, was it 14 billion for reparations? 
I, I mean, I didn't. I think it's noteworthy that. Hold I mean, on, let me see, Corey. That's Bunch, a con. That's, that's congratulations. I want to make sure I get this right. Hold on a second, Corey Bush. Oh, squad member Corey Bush mm -hmm. introduces resolution for fourteen trillion with a T okay. in reparations. So this is where we're at. Yeah, I mean, the to be honest, the whole goal here is only for the state to use tax money to pay to lobby for that. That's all that's really happening here. Or to be honest, lobbying the administration to do more that's clearly legal and also unconstitutional through executive um, actions. But um, yeah, $14 trillion, I mean, that's, that's a lot more than California is proposing. Uh, on the flip side, just for, just for flavor, um, there's also a parallel report to this that was prepared by a specialized group for the city of San Francisco, and and I think their proposal adds up to more like eight hundred trillion dollars, and that's one city's proposal right. of what to pay. So I mean, if nothing else, there are a lot of people in California that think this just sounds great. So, uh, so here's what the, here's the, here's what the report says. So Cory Bush introduced legislation on Wednesday that would provide a federal reparations program for black Americans. The draft of the, of the resolution claims the United States has a moral and legal obligation to provide reparations for the enslavement of Africans and its lasting harm on the lives of millions of black people in this country. The resolution further calls for 14 trillion to be distri distributed to American folks, American blacks, in an effort to close the racial wealth gap. Yeah, um, there's some real good work that's been done, I believe, at the Manhattan Institute. I'm going to cite to Ian Rowe. I know he's one of the, the people who's, who's worked on this. Um, there, there are people like squad members who want to talk about the... Um, racial wealth gap um if one pays attention and Ian Rowe, by the way i mean he's a really impressive man um he's an academic who's african-american and runs charter schools in the bronx um he, if you disaggregate by um family structure there is no wealth gap none I, it's gone um you know so um this is why like he talked he likes to talk about agency he has a book entitled agency which i'd recommend um which just highlights like if people recognize their own agencies over their own lives and follow the success sequence of you know um marry before you have children um graduate from at least high school and get a job um, the chances that you will wind up in poverty in america are vanishingly small and race plays no role there so uh, people have the agency to overcome this. Um, equal protection is what our constitution requires, what the American people expect, uh, what is morally right, and, uh, and also a better way to address the purported problem of a wealth gap, of letting people uh, get it right and fix their own affairs. And what we aren't talking about here is that most blacks don't go to college they have no desire to so they're given all this free university 
Here yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about like the the like the whole idea like there like majority of blacks don't even graduate high school. If we're going to go into statistics, I mean, oh, I don't think that's a majority, but I mean, but yeah, I mean, like the the student loan um, forgiveness proposals of the the of this administration um, are an enormous handout to um, people to high earners at the right. expense of those who are not. And if you pay any attention to the systematic things that they like to talk about, like, is there a disparate impact? Like, I, to be honest, I, I'm not a big fan of disparate impact theory. I think dis, a disparate impact of a policy is at best um, circumstantial evidence of an intent to do something illegal. Uh, but it's nothing more than that. Yeah. But the administration doesn't doesn't believe that. And uh, if they don't, it's really hard to imagine how they can think that uh, their own proposals here could be legal or justified because it is an, an, because there is a very pronounced rake to the, the benefit um, and it isn't going in the direction that um, that they they seem to usually insist on government being conscious of and enforcing in ways that are that are unconstitutional. But, and we also see that community, you know, they make up 12% of the population. They commit almost 60% of the crimes. And I mean, if they did get free university, if they did get all this free schooling, what would they do? I mean, I, I don't think they would go there majority of them I don't think would go there for the right reasons, if that makes sense. I, I'm not going to second guess people. And to be honest, look, I mean, I, I do believe that like uh, there's a professor at UCLA named Rick Sanders and Rick Sanders has written extensively about the concept of mismatch. Um, he argues and has documented and because he's documented in the past, um, state institutions now uh, refuse to turn over the data he would need to update his published works on this subject in ways that are probably legal. I'll, I'll tease that for you. Um, he's documented that um, there are the effects of racial preferences and admissions downstream. Um, the schools in America the, the competitive schools in America. We should flag that most colleges and universities in America have open admissions policies. Most colleges and universities in America are, are community colleges and none of this applies to them or to any of their students. But at the selective colleges, um, the schools that have the, the smallest or no um, hand on the scale to rejigger their racial numbers are HBCUs. And HBCUs as a result, every, and by the way, there are HBCUs that are now majority majority white. I think there are two of them in West Virginia. One of them is Blue, um, Blue State. Is that what, that's, not, that's not right. It's Blue something, Bluefield. Bluefield State, I think is the name. Um, they have no, no race conscious admissions policies. They have next to no discrepancies between their students in terms of um, success in their schools. Um, the places that do, this is not true of. And um, the larger the seeming preferences are, the greater the exit from certain fields. So that like um, the percentages of students by ethnicity going into, say, Harvard, I'm going to pick on them for a minute. Uh, who come in saying, I want to be a doctor, I want to be an engineer. The percentages are very similar between ethnic groups. 
when people come in. They are not similar at graduation. Um, why? Because schools that have systematically admitted people who otherwise would not be up to their standards, um, the, the people so admitted tend not to fare very well. They tend to congregate in the, the bottom quartile of their classes. They tend to wind up exiting fields like pre-med and engineering and move into majors that are flatly easier. As a result, the decades of the decades of race-based admissions at America's selective institutions have systematically reduced the number of black people who graduate pre-med, who go to med schools, who graduate from med schools, who graduate from law schools. They have systematically reduced the number and the number of America's African American professionals. We have fewer we have fewer college professors because of those undergraduate admissions policies. There is a depraved network of, it's not network, a systematic effect here. Um, and that, you know, there's a term, there's a book, which I, you know, I had sitting right here and I moved, um, I moved across the house. Um, there's a book that um, was co-authored by Gail Harriet. Um, yeah. That book is called um, a... I'm totally blanking on the title. She's going to, she's going to, she's my, the chairman of my board and she's going to be very unhappy. A dubious expediency. I got there. Okay. Yeah. A dubious expediency. It's actually a quote from this, the California liberal who wrote the opinion at the state Supreme court, which was appealed to the Supreme court in Baki that created the diversity rationale for racial discrimination. The Supreme court of the United States overruled the Supreme court of California. He referred to race-based admissions policies as a dubious expediency that should be avoided. Her book is great. I highly recommend it. In any case, though, um, yeah, like we, we have systematically harmed the purported beneficiaries of these policies. Um, that's not the only reason that we need to end racial discrimination at admissions and elsewhere. Um, but it's, it's a perfectly good and sufficient reason that we should. And at this point in our society, it's fair to say that white people deal with the most discrimination and racism and hate, don't you? I would say. Um, so, I mean, if we're limiting this to race based de jure discrimination. I mean, we deal with um, a lot of shit, I feel like, too, like too much. Too much of, there are a lot Anybody of. Anybody has to bitch about racism, it should be us. <laughs> there are a lot of institutions which are systematically discriminating against um, uh, against white people in favor of non-white people. Yeah, there's like more this, diverse. There's That's also true of Asians and often more aggressively so. Real quick, like, I just, the, real quick, I just want to say yeah. there's this idea, there's this indoctrination coming from the left that they're programming in their supporters' heads that white people are this gifted, automatically privileged you know, species and we should be ridiculed and looked down upon. I mean, it's fucked. It's racism at its finest stage. You it, know, It is racism. The, it, it, I should flag that this is also true, that because these programs are intended to generate an artificial skin deep diversity, uh, they also tend to punish Asians uh, most yeah, yeah, aggressively Asians of too. all. So oh, yeah. There's, that, that is certainly worth remembering. I, I'll also just chuck in there as well. 
Um, if you look at all of the hate crime statistics, yeah, um, the group that is targeted far more than any other in America is America's Jews, and um, you know the the DEI offices of America um, don't want to admit that that's even a thing. Um, they want to per- they want to reclassify Jews as the whitest of white people, which. Um, uh, you know, there were a whole lot of wasps for a whole lot of decades who did not agree. So, um, you know, I, it is worth remembering that the people most targeted for their ancestry in America tend to be Orthodox Jews living in like Brooklyn um, because they're immediately obvious who they are and and people hate them for it. Who? What do you think about all this interracial uh, advertising that we're seeing everywhere that's being indoctrinated and shoved down our throats and uh, all, no, the trans- I mean, honestly, all this transgender stuff. What do you think about that? Sure. Um, to be honest, um, like that, the, those, the advertising, I mean, you know, it's fine to love who you love, but they're purposely shoving it down people's throats. Yeah. Um, Oh, and by and on some I level, to, I just don't. I, I mean, personally, I just don't care. And I, mean, I also want, I shouldn't say that. Like, I I shouldn't say I don't care. But Dan, um, I don't view it, it as a legal and, issue. And you know, people people can make the business decisions they want, and those business decisions will trigger ramifications. And don't them. you think they've backfired strongly on many? Spectacularly, right? So I mean, like, so that you know, the market's the market, and the market will take care of the market as long as we let the market take care of the market, as long as we don't. Um, let the Black Rocks of the world um, force things systematically through um, their ownership of corporations in order to stop the market from self-regulating. And ob- and when did obesity become such a fashion statement? <laughs> I'm not sure it ever has been a fashion statement, but it's definitely something that um, that uh, some of our woke friends would like to um, at least pretend to... Um, to value, though um, I don't know if you've ever read or talked to Richard Hanania. Um, he's written on this that uh, there are revealed preferences which differ from expressed preferences, especially on obesity. That like you can tell me all you want that you think what you think is most attractive, but um, I think I think when he's written about this, he's like found some statistics on right. So which porn pages are used most often? Yeah. Thanks. No, it isn't. And everyone knows it. So and you know, Dan, I want to ask you, you I want to ask you, why do you think over 70% of Democrat 70 percent over 70% of Jewish people vote Democrat? Um I read 70 I'm Jewish I read, and I am happy to I, I read 73 73% or something. I read. So I'm Jewish and I'm happy to answer this, but it's gonna be a longer answer. Do you do you want that? No, that's fine. No, I want to hear it. <laughs> we got okay. time. We got time. Go ahead. Go um, ahead. Understand that anytime you see a statistic that says, um, how do Jews vote? That you are not actually getting an answer of how do Jews vote? You're actually getting an answer of how do the people who tell a pollster outside a polling place that they're Jewish vote? So those are materially different things. If you wanna look at the voting behavior of people who are actively Jewish, participate in Jewish community organizations, um, that behavior will look very different than that polling data. That polling data is capturing a lot of people who, when they say they're Jewish, they don't actually know 
um, a whole lot about Jewish thought. Uh, forgive me, and I'm sure that there are definitely Jews who this does not apply to who are politically liberal. And I'm not going to, they exist as well and are, you know, to some extent, they're, some of those people are old people who still think they're voting for FDR. Um, some of them, some of them are uh, people who just, you know, have been uh, raised in an echo chamber and are going to continue along because that's what's expected of them. Uh, and then you've got this additional group, which is material, um, which are the people who I, I think I would describe as um, they might not know anything about Judaism. They might not know anything about what Jewish practices are or Jewish values would teach them, but they know they really hate the religious right. And if that's who you're talking about, I don't think it's surprising that those people vote for Democrats. And that's a it's a material portion of the people who outside a polling place tell you they're Jewish. So I think it's a false positive. I think there's a reason that the most Jewish neighborhoods in, say, say Brooklyn are among the most Republican precincts in the city. Um, and I think that that's a trend that you'll see continue to grow. Um, I remember reading at one point. It wasn't reading. I remember hearing at one point. I, I did both. Um, Grover Norquist, 20, 25 years ago, um, his assessment was uh, that, look, you can look at the Jewish community. You can see who is having children and whose children are staying Jewish. And um, overwhelmingly, um, that those numbers are far more dramatically orthodox than are the numbers for the Jewish community as a whole. Um, and the Orthodox vote like the rest of the religious right. So his conclusion was, this is, um, this is a, a, a question of watching, <laughs> I, think he, I think he said it this way, uh, now I'm paraphrasing, so you know, in, from 25 years. Um, this is one where we just have to watch the snake, tra the lamb travel down the, the, the lamb travel down the, the snake. Um, that uh, in our lifetime, every election, we will get to the point where every election the, the conservative wins the Jewish vote. And by the time it happens, no one will be surprised. So I, I think that's right. It's just a matter of time. Are you trying to like say like the non-secular Jews and the secular Jews? Is that kind of what you're trying to? <laughs> right. There's also a lot of uh, terminology embedded there. Um, right. Um, Orthodox Jews, the most religious Jews generally, yeah. um, vote like the rest of the religious right. And um, the people who, when they identify themselves as Jewish, tend to mean I eat a bagel every once in a while, I like Seinfeld, and I hate the religious right. They don't vote like the religious right. They despise the religious right. But that's not unique to them. It's true of all of the nuns, uh, so to speak. So you're, so you're saying they basically hate, they, 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 they hate the Jewish religion. They hate what it stands for. I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, you know, there are different, look, I mean, for a very long time, it is, there's been a, a saying, right? That if you have two Jews, you've got three opinions. Mm -hmm. um, it's not <laughs> new that we don't often all speak with a common voice. So um, yeah, I mean, and there's, there are times we do, and that's great. And it shouldn't surprise us that's often not the case. And it shouldn't surprise us that there are subgroups who look at each other and can it just with utter bafflement and can't understand how these people can even be Jews and so wrong. And do you think the neo-Nazi narrative is a little over overboard? I mean, I we don't walk we don't walk outside and really see those people on a daily basis, do we? Um, 
Let me answer the two ways. Uh, on the one hand, um, the alt-right is real, a terrifying presence online. And um, I certainly know people who have been targeted uh, by it in really repugnant ways. On the other hand, um, the highest concentrations of anti-Jewish violence tend to be in neighborhoods of Brooklyn, and um, the New Yorkers attacking their neighbors are not neo-Nazis. That's not who it is. If that's the only story you're willing to look at, you're missing the point. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that there really are hateful people from lots of different communities targeting Jews. They right. do include neo-Nazis. They do include um, the, what, Black Israelites, um, which is a fake Jewish organization uh, that likes to claim that all Jews are just stealing the identity of West Africans. Um, nonetheless, um, with all that said, it's uh, it's important for us to remember, and for especially for Jews to be conscious and vocalize that all of those different brands of Jew hatred are equally unacceptable. What, what, okay. Obviously it's not just neo-Nazis. What other groups do you think are mainly targeting Jews? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of animosity and hostility between black, the black community. And, yeah, and I, I don't want to label that the black, black people no. as a whole. Right. But like, I mean, like uh, uh, black Israelites, black Israelites were the people who shot up the kosher grocery store in New Jersey. They're the people who um, infiltrated and stabbed a bunch of rabbis at a Hanukkah party. Um, you know, if you're looking for a particular group that you could label and say, that's, this seems to be people who often are the perps. Um, you know, I'd look at that and say, you know, that, that would be an example. And none of them are neo-Nazis. And um, would you say Muslims also as well? I uh, again, I don't want to badmouth all Muslims, but um, but there certainly are subsets among Muslims who are aggressively anti-Semitic. And what what do you think? Why do you think? In, in terms of religion, I think it's fair for us to say that Muslims probably have the most animosity towards the Jews. I, would, you, would you say that's I, fair? I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's the Quran, according to what they represent. I, I'm sure we could find polling data, but I, I have no idea. Um, I think actually Pew did poll, you know, what do different groups think of different groups? And uh, and we could look it up, but I don't, I don't know. Wait, it says right here. Uh, hold on. I got some data. I want to show this data real quick. Uh, let's see here. America against anti-Semitism. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, the results show that of 194 documented assaults, the perpetrators' group identities were known 99 times. According to the report's data, 64% of those assaults were committed by black people, 17% by Muslims or Arabs, and 11% by Hispanics, and 3% by whites. I, and that might be true. I, I, I won't purport to know. So wait, so do you think New York is where it happens the most? Or south, down south, do you think it happens? Oh, no, no. I mean, um, no, I, I think it's demonstrable that, that, the, that most of these, that an awful, a disproportionate number of these hate crimes are occurring in New York and in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, too, it's happening a lot? Uh, I mean, that's at least my impression, though. Um, now we're getting kind of far afield from my expertise. Now let me let me ask let me ask you, and, and yeah. you'll you you'll answer probably this question. What do you think of what do you think of Kanye? What do you think? Do you were you 
like how did you view that situation? <laughs> um, to be honest, um, Misunder my, a little misunderstood. He probably should have worded his. I I, I have no idea. I I don't. I've no clue. Um, my my hip hop consumption uh, pretty much peaked with the Beastie Boys. So right. I'm not gonna. I mean, I I yeah. I have nothing useful I can add there. I I he seemingly he has some deep emotional problems and um a bunch of them tied up with his divorce and seemingly lashed out in ways that I, I, I suspect even he now regrets, but who knows? Dan, but Dan, let me ask you something like there, there has been, you know, things to back up that the, the Jewish, the Jewish community does have a lot of ownership over Hollywood, over wall street, over banks, over a, a lot of industries. And, and I'm trying because I, I have a lot of Jewish friends and they admit the same thing. There's a lot of power in the Jewish community with a lot of institutions. I mean, I'd say that differently. Um, there are no industries that Jews. 90% of, of the studios in Hollywood are run by Jewish people. There are no industries that are controlled by Jews. There are Jews. It's Jews, Dan. Dan, they, no, hold on, hold on. Dan, it's a Jews lot. Dan, it's a lot. And even my Jewish friends are proud of it. They're like, yeah. "Yes, we do. Hell yeah, right. we do." Jews are disproportionately represented in some fields. That's true. Yes, like the medical field, the entertainment field, the banking industry. I mean, every yeah. every sector. Congress, I mean, they are yes. they're dominating. They're do I mean, uh, I, dominating I pray, is not true. I praise them for it. No, dominating is not true. I mean, uh, disproportionately represented, yes, but you know we're less than two percent of the population, so you can be disproportionately represented um, with a whole lot of numbers that are shy of domination. Um, but, but and I think that's the case. I mean, come on, it, it it makes them smart. It makes them strategic. I mean, they're why why are they why are people called anti-Semitic for making remarks like that though? Because I've heard in the media. People say anti-Semi, if you say anything that Jewish people have a lot to do with Hollywood or Jewish people have a lot to do with banks, but there it's known factual evidence behind it. It's not like it's just made up. Uh, well, I mean, there's a difference, right? Like, I mean, there's a difference between, and it depends what comes after the observation. Usually it's yeah? the liberal media who says stuff And it like depends that. what comes after the observation, right? Like, I mean, um, there's a line that I know um, Professor Dershowitz has used from the history of Harvard, believe it or not. Um, that like back when Harvard created its admission system to exclude more Jews, right? Um, the president of the university who was responsible for that was asked at some point. So um, why, why is it so important to you that there not be more Jews at the school? And his answer was, well, because Jews cheat. And the um, questioner said, yes, and, and Christians cheat. And his answer was, well, why are you changing the subject? We're talking about Jews. Um, so... I mean, like, are there Jewish bankers? Yes. Are there Jewish investment advisors? Yes. Are they disproportionate numbers? Yes. Uh, did they control? No. I, so, I mean, um, I, I would not describe it as as anti as Jew hating for someone to observe. There are a lot of Jews here. No, that's true. Of course, <laughs> it's true. But. I will say though, like, you got George Soros, you got Mark Zuckerberg, you got Larry Fink. Fink, Jeffrey Epstein, J.D. Diamond, got a lot of powerful Harvey Weinstein, uh, some of the biggest names that run the shows, you know, uh, 
like but you said they're right and Sheldon Adelson and I mean like I mean yeah. right I mean like yes Steve Wynn Steve Wynn yes yeah but yeah. but and then the almost everybody in the Federal Reserve too is is Jewish I have no idea if that's true but I'm I'm just saying I you know I give them more praise for it I I just don't know why people try to deny it you know I don't know yeah I I I, yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I do not know the ethnicity of the people on the, the Federal Reserve Bank boards. I, I, I want to ask you about this ESG movement. What can you tell us about the dangers of this? Um, I tend to focus most on the S of the ESG. Uh, my organization exists to, um, to protect and restore the equal protection of all Americans against those who would replace equal protection with what they like to call equity. By the way, it's not equity. I mean, that's a whole different rant of mine. This is a word that has a thousand year history in the English language. And um, and what they're talking about is not it. It's the opposite of equity. Regardless, um, the, uh, the, I'd say it this way. There are a small number of there are a small number of organizations which run passive investment funds that hold a, an enormous percentage of America's wealth and are using other people's money to force their political preferences through uh, corporate forms across America. Um, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, they're the three largest and they're the three that are usually pointed to. Between them, they own controlling shares of something like 80% of the S&P 500 and of countless smaller corporations. Um, they're also, um, they also own and control directly or indirectly 14 of the 15 largest banks in America. These are the organizations that are pushing the ESG agenda um, through their uh, voting power uh, across America's corporations. These are the organizations that are lobbying the SEC to force um, discriminatory and well, E, S, and G policies uh, <laughs> on uh, American corporations. So um, th th that that's a big deal. And I, I think there are things that probably can be done about it. A lot of them need to really be done by a state attorney general. Yeah, we, uh, we talked about that yesterday. Mm -hmm. 27 attorney generals are on it right now with... Right. Uh, They've at least know. made demands, and I know they're working on what the actual litigation looks like. I know I have views. I've told them my views. We'll see whether they follow them. And, and some of the recent big cases you were talking about yesterday mm -hmm. uh, that you've been involved with, Coca-Cola, and there was a few other ones that you got. Right. So um, we um, – our view is that there's actually an explanation for how that ESG-pushing set of entities – are um, responsible for what is happening downstream in America's boardrooms and C-suites. And we're of the view that basically, look, I mean, it, it's not just my view. Like, you can look at what happened at Exxon. Um, uh, BlackRock instructed Exxon, you are going to move on from being an oil company and in, start investing in green energy. And Exxon's board looked at them and said, are you crazy? I, we're an oil company. No. So what happened um, at the next shareholders meeting? Um, BlackRock voted out a whole slate of Exxon's board and replaced them with flunkies who would do what they said. 
So um, that sends a message. It sends a really powerful message. And, you know, if you're a board member at a company and you look at something and you say, huh, there are people telling me to do something that is business suicide and insane. And if I do it, they'll protect me. And if I don't do it, they'll fire me. What do you think those people are going to do? Um, so we think the real problem here is that there's this disconnect between the, um, the interests of America's corporations and the interests of the decision makers at those corporations. And we're trying to fix that by making demands on behalf of shareholders against the officers and directors of very large, very prominent, very iconically American corporations. The first one we made a demand on was Coca-Cola. Um, they had a bunch of policies about what their outside counsel had to do to get their work, to keep their work, to be paid for their work in full, all of which was illegal. Um, we made demand that they pull down the policies. They eventually did. Um, <laughs> this is the short version. They eventually did. They, uh, they wouldn't tell you that. They would, they would tell you, and I know this because I have it in writing, um, they would tell you that when their general counsel published uh, a letter on their letterhead telling their firms that he hired what they had to do to ever be hired again or to be paid in full for their work, that wasn't a policy of the firm. That was just some guy talking. Um, I think that's self-refuting, but, you know... Um, but they did take the position this never was and is not now our policy. So there we were. Um, we had a similar interaction with Lowe's companies, the, the hardware chain, um, where they similarly, rather than litigate these topics, simply uh, abandoned the policy. Again, they wouldn't tell you that, but I would. It's what they did. Um, and then separately, we've made demands on a host of additional companies, ranging from Starbucks, with whom we're actually in litigation, to... Um, J.P. Morgan, Chase, um, Dropbox, Levi's. Um, I know I'm forgetting people that we've written to. Regardless, we have, uh, oh, Pfizer. That's another one that we've written to um, with whom we are negotiating or waiting for answers or, you know, in the preparation for litigation. So, um, so that's where we are. Um, we think that these lawsuits are really the key that um, the only way you're going to change corporate behavior is to change the incentive structure of the people who are actually making and implementing these decisions. So we're trying to hold them personally accountable for what they're doing with other people's money. Um, you know, every state we've looked at has an exception to the business judgment rule. Now I'm talking like a lawyer, but bear with me. Um, the business judgment rule generally says if you're an officer of a company and you do something because you think it'll work out and it doesn't, as long as um, as long as you were as long as you honestly thought it would help the company, nobody can sue you over it. You might have been dumb, but you you have a legal right to be dumb. Uh, on the other hand, there's an exception to the business judgment rule, and ex this exception says. If you make it a policy to violate substantive law, we don't charter lawbreakers. So it's um, it's illegal for you to say, to, to make it a policy of violating the law. And, you know, I like to think of it this way. You know, um, if I invest in a record store and it starts selling magazines, I, I really can't complain about that. But if I invest in a, rec in a pharmacy and it starts selling crack, yeah, I can complain about that. I can. And the courts will enjoin it. And they'll hold the people who decided to start selling crack 
uh, with my money responsible and make them put, make good the harm they've done to the company. Uh, and I think once we're successful in tagging the officers and directors of, say, Starbucks for the harm they've done to their investors, that's going to change their willingness to do things just because Larry Fink and BlackRock said it was a good idea. You know, when when we start taking away people's vacation houses and yachts, they're going to be a lot less willing to take that phone call and do what they're told because they have a lot more to lose than they have to gain from doing obviously illegal things that have been illegal since 1866. Amen. Amen. And Dan, I love having you with us. I could talk to you all day. Um, and, and so far in your career, what's the biggest thing you're proud of? <laughs> um, shoot. Um, you know, there are lots of things that we're working on. Probably our biggest wins are things like Coca-Cola backing down. Um, we also backed down the city of Pittsburgh from, uh, an obviously racially discriminatory program that they were running. Um, and there are more that we'll be announcing soon, but I, I shouldn't do that just yet. <laughs> All right, man. We'll get you back here soon. I love having you here. Um, and tell everybody where they can connect with you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. Please. Okay. So our website is um, www.americancivilrightsproject.org. It really is straight through like that. We are on Twitter where our account is um, American CR Proj with a J. Uh, find us there. We're also on Facebook. Uh, find us any way you like. You can um, you can send pigeons. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We do need the help. How do you how do you see the future of civil rights? I mean, how do you see this going forward? I mean, yeah, um, we, we've gone we've gone really backwards. I think I'm a lot more optimistic than many people are. Uh, I like to hone in on that election result from 2020. That even um, frankly, a uniparty state like Cal, even in a uniparty state like California. Racial discrimination is less acceptable now, even the faddish kinds, even with the support of every newspaper, TV station, um, and politician in the state. Um, it is less popular now than it was in 1996. And like you can delve into the polling data on college admissions, and there is a very stable, very broad uh, super majority of Americans who are opposed. And frankly, the only reason that um, race-based admissions is controversial is because uh, there's no substantive disagreement except with the people who are running the programs. So, you know, our institutions have been captured and we need to take them back. Um, but generally speaking, I, I tend to be more optimistic because I know it's right, I know it's legal, and I know it's popular, and they're all on our side. So as long as that's the case, eventually this is going to work its way out. We just need to take back our institutions. We need to follow, you know, the Chris Rufo model and of um, New College in Florida. We need to take things back, and we need to start writing the ship and actually doing what the Constitution commits us to: equally protecting all Americans, assuring the equal treatment of all of us, um, recognizing that all of us have the same rights, and. Um, and none of this is acceptable. Oh, amen. Amen. Um, and thanks for being with us, man. We'll talk to you soon. We'll get you back here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All righty. Uh, everybody, it's been a phenomenal show today. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we will be back next week uh, for another great episode of Rory Sodder in the News with big names in attendance. Until then, 
I'm Rory Sauter. I will be hosting the Next Gen Live tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, so tune in. But uh, God bless everybody. Much love. Cheers.